Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Today is Tuesday, April 28th, 2020, starting at 11.15 a.m. here in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 253rd episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologers Kelly Surtees and Austin Kopic about the astrological forecast for May of 2020. Uh, hey guys, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Hey, guys. Hey, so uh, for those just starting the video version of this episode, usually we try to jump right into the forecast first, but we're going to spend a little bit of time talking and catching up uh, and reviewing the past month, and then eventually we'll get into the astrological forecast for May. So for those of you that just want to jump straight to the forecast, just look in the description either below this video or on the Astrology Podcast website on the description page for this episode if you're listening to the audio version. And there you'll find a timestamp so that you can jump straight forward to the forecast and skip the preliminary talk that we're going to have for the next, I don't know, 30 minutes or so. All right. So here we are. We are back again after what, a month? It's been a really crazy month in the world in general and in our lives in general. Uh, I've been sick still for the past month. It actually turned into like a six week long illness that I'm just finally fully coming out of now. And the last lingering issues is just dealing with fatigue and getting tired, but I'm starting to get back to doing podcast episodes after a really long gap there because I actually got more sick after we did our last one and sort of took a few steps back, which I wasn't anticipating. How have you guys been doing? How are things in uh, Belgium, Kelly? Yeah. Um, just it's very quiet here in Belgium. We've, you know, just like everyone else, lockdown conditions. Um, being someone who has worked online for a really long time, there's a sense of kind of a familiarity because I'm working in, in ways that I would have been otherwise. Uh, so it's, it's sort of a weird thing of like, yes, there's a lot that's different and new that's going on that is, of course, affecting us. We were supposed to have a trip back to Canada to see family um, in April, which we clearly didn't do. Uh, so it's just been sort of a weird surreal experience of some things being really familiar working online as normal but other things just being very weird and very strange and very different how about you yeah, guys that makes Austin? a lot of sense uh, i can relate to that you know i've worked online and from home for a decade plus and so there are some things that are uh, utterly normal obviously travel plans got uh got smashed um but you know it it's it's still experientially very different to be doing the same thing while the entire rest of the world is not right yeah. it seems like that you know the um <laughs> the the context is a little bit different um I, I i would say it's been really interesting to me to see uh people and moss um sort uh engaging with the self-scheduling challenge that you know, I, you, uh, and you as well, Chris, have been living with for a long time, right? And it's self scheduling is it is its own skill set is it is its own monumental challenge. Like it's it's not something you're just you know you just know how to do and are great at. And so I don't know. It's been really interesting to to like see other people engaging with something that's just been part of my part of my normal and seeing my normal from a new angle because of that. And I've also realized like I, I've learned some things about it. I'm not, uh, I don't live up to my own standards, but 
Uh, I, I'm better at it than I used to be. And it's been, I don't know, it's been kind of fun to be like, oh, well, so I use this trick to get myself to do the right thing um, at the right time of day. And so that's been part of it. Yeah. Well, and we're all extraordinarily lucky where we happen to have jobs where we can work from home for the most part in terms of me doing the podcast or you guys teaching online classes or doing consultations through Zoom. And um, yeah, everybody's starting to like use Zoom and other online platforms suddenly, but it's something that we were a little ahead of the curve on. Yeah, but I have noticed that I have been slightly less productive than normal, that um, taking time and energy to process myself, all the emotions with everything that's going on collectively, I have noticed my productivity has come down a percentage and I've just sort of said, you know what, um, this is not normal times. Even though, as we're saying, working from home is our baseline of normal, it's not happening in an environment or, as you said, Austin, a context that is normal. And I'm just, you know, I've just reduced a couple of things because I'm like, I, I need to be mindful that some of my energy is going to manage myself in this um, mm. global pandemic space. And I just can't, you know, go at that level work-wise that I might normally when things are more familiar out there. <laughs> well, and it's fascinating That's how funny. much the like the Mars Saturn conjunction that we talked about so much in the forecast, the year ahead forecast for the entirety of 2020 during this part of the year. I think I used the analogy of um, of Mars Saturn being like you know pressing the gas. Uh, in your car and the brake at the same time, and like wanting to move forward, but also being stopped and being immobile at the same time, and that ended up being like a really evocative description of most people's experience of this time, especially over the past month during like a worldwide quarantine where lots of people are are stuck at home or being forced to, yeah, and like not do what they otherwise would do due to the restrictions or due to the fear of um, getting sick or what have you. You know, I've actually yeah. had and Oh, go ahead, Kelly. Oh, I was just going to say yeah, the timelines are different. You know, you can't make plans for 6 months from now or 9 months from now. You can kind of focus on the next week and that's about it. So there's been a real adjustment in um sort of planning and that Mars Saturn like Mars immediate Saturn long term and you know, we've had to really shift and and not do both at the same time. That's for sure. Right. So Austin, I've had I've had sort of um, the opposite response to the same stimulus, um, Kelly. I've been more productive. Um, oh, interesting. The, yeah, like the ambient, I should say, danger, risk, dark timeness makes me feel like okay. Well, I definitely need to get shit done. Um, it's motivating for me um, when there's like low when there's lower risk in the environment where I perceive mm. that it makes me lazier. Whereas when there's risk, it like, it, you know, and I think this is me having a uh, Mars Saturn opposition in the natal. Yeah. Um, where I'm just, it fires that and it's like, okay, let's survive, right? Like let's, let's, let's survive super well. I've been more disciplined about my diet. I've been more disciplined about strength training. Um, and I've been noticing people who have um, like Mars Saturn, like, conjunctions or oppositions having a similar response where they're like, okay, yeah, it's serious. Let's do this. Um, which is, you know, it makes sense that, um, if you're a Mars Saturn person, that Mars Saturn time would feel even, uh, not comfortable, but 
um, familiar. Familiar. Yeah. That's a really interesting point. So, and just to wrap things up in terms of the health thing, because a lot of people were writing in to ask me after last month what was going on, and then I didn't do any podcast episodes for several weeks. Uh, we did. We think that I got COVID. I did end up going into the urgent care or like an emergency room at one point due to a, a pain that developed in my right lung, and I needed to get X-rays, but I wasn't able to get tested because they were reserving the tests only for people in critical condition. Uh, which was kind of an interesting experience because it made me realize that despite how many people have been tested and how many confirmed cases there are, those numbers are probably actually lower if they're not even testing people unless they have the most severe cases in some areas or in a major like metropolitan city like Denver. But uh, luckily, I've been coming out of it and doing all right. Um, it's been an interesting thing in terms of a 12th house perfection year for me. And Kelly, you made uh, an observation about that, where where you know everyone's sort of quarantined at home right now. But I've got an even more extreme, like twelfth house version of that, where I've been stuck in my room for like the past six weeks, uh, not going out because I'm trying not to get my partner Lisa sick, and that's been that's been a challenge. Yeah, it just seems like um, well, if everybody else is already at home, what's the more twelfth house iteration of that? I guess and being stuck in a bedroom for such a long time you know that there's a lot of isolation themes that come up with that yeah yeah it's uh, been well, it's been really go ahead no go ahead what are you going to say yeah it it's been really interesting to see how these transits are landing in individual charts and how that describes the experience so for example i i entered a 6th house perfection topics such as health um, on March 5th, right before all this got going. Um, and so, you know, I was going to be focused on health anyway. Um, and so (laughs) this has, um, rather sharpened that focus. Um, but I did want to add just, uh, one tiny little, um, happy side of a sixth house perfection is the sixth house is also where we see pets. And I think we're finally going to get a, a new kitten. We're talking about this. So ah! not only we were talking, we were looking at potential candidates yesterday. And this morning I woke up horribly underslept right around dawn. And there were some deer out in the front yard and there was a little cat. And I, you know, I, I opened my office door and I said, hey, little cat, he just came right into my office, just started meowing and inspecting everything. I have a scratcher in here for my cat. And he just like laid down, got to work on the scratcher. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And it's funny, right? Because it's just like, oh, it's pet time. It's this. It's a sixth house perfection. It's it's pet time. I've never had a cat just walk in to my house and be friendly. Um, and then mm. within twelve hours of being like, yeah, we should see if we should, you know, looking at kitten, like literally, not kitten shopping, but looking at the the new batch from a breeder, right? Um, twelve hours of that. Twelve hours later, boom, new cat in the office. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty good. Sixth house perfection. It. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in terms of, uh, so as I was sitting in my room for the past six weeks, uh, thinking about my 12th house perfection year, one of the things that I realized is um, <laughs> the- It's the best example. I mean, it's a horrible yeah. situation, but the symbolism. Well, one of the things I realized is that the first house isn't just the self- which is really common in across astrological traditions, but it also has to do with uh, self-agency. 
agency of the self. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, if you look at the entire angular triad of the sequence of the 12th, the first, and the second, if the first house is self-agency and the second house is rising up towards the first and is increasing, then the second is like the increase of self-agency, which is kind of interesting because that's one of the things that allows you to have an increase of self-agency is um, if you have greater financial means. That's something that sometimes people associate with the ability to, to do what you want or call the shots or have greater control, whereas the 12th house would be the decline, the declining house relative to the first house angular triads. So the 12th is the loss of self-agency, uh, which then becomes a perfect archetypal descriptor, descriptor for many of the things that you find in the 12th house, such as prison or hospitals or other things. And it would mean that like the combining factor, the overarching archetype for all of those is like the loss of self-agency or situations in which you find yourself with a loss of self-agency. And that's what ties together all of those 12th house topics. Yeah, that's really good. And that actually, I so this, almost this exact topic came up in my year two class on Sunday. Um, I literally ended up ranking the houses in terms of how agentic or how, how much agency you have there, right? Like the first house obviously being number one for agency and mm. either the 12th or the 6th being um you know uh, being last on the list as far as places where one you have power and two places where you can expect a planet um to be something that you do right when a planet is in the in the 12th there's there there's some of the what you do or what you accidentally do but it very often um same with the six they will very often tend to be uh, tend to uh, mark events that are not under your control, right? Things that happen to you, or ra rather than things that that you happen to. Right. It's funny all this focus on the twelfth as well. I did a webinar at the start of April, looking at the eighth and twelfth houses, and that setting of the twelfth house, the loss of agency, is such a poetic description. And of course, you know, nature of the planets in the twelfth. Are you? in the loss of self-agency space because you personally have lost your agency or are you in that space acting as a helper or a support for other people who have lost their agency? Mm. Right, which is the positive yep. manifestations that you see oftentimes with sixth and 12th house placements, especially if they're like career significators. And yeah, I people had, working and helping yeah. professions. Yeah, I had a, an example this morning and it was a long-term client of mine. It was so good. And I was like, oh my God, do you mind if I use your chart for teaching purposes? And they were like, absolutely, go right ahead. They have an, a daytime chart with an Aries MC and Mars is in Gemini in the 12th. And they work with uh, female victims of abuse and trauma. They work as a therapist in that environment. And they're very passionate about giving people in those situations a voice which I thought was just such a poetic symbolism of the Mars Gemini 12th house. Let me be your advocate and help you find your voice as you recover mm -hmm. from these very horrific Mars situations that you have survived. Yeah, right. one think right. about it all makes of a lot the, of sense. I, I have an example like that in my book of like a doctor that I met once who was a client that had the ruler of the ascendant in the 10th and the 6th, and they focused on especially patient care and improving like the care of patients. In the hospital. That's but right. I remember that example from your book. It's a great one. 
Yeah. Um, but think about all of the, I mean, that raises like all of the doctors right now. Like I've read stories about all the doctors eventually needing to get therapy due to just the trauma of what they're witnessing right now and like the scale of um, deaths that are taking place just over the course of the past month, um, which is something they deal with on a regular basis, but not not to this level. Just in terms of, I don't yeah, know, I'm like- <laughs> people, people that have sixth and twelfth house placements, and, and we're talking about like a positive manifestation of that, but still you know, there could be negative effects of working in that environment in some inst- some extreme instances, let's say, just in terms of what you're being exposed to. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I absolutely. In, in, a, in a past life, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I worked in mental health in a variety of jobs. And it's the, the wear and tear on the people uh, at every level working in mental health is huge. You know, a lot of people just like right. can only do it for so long. And I'm sure that that applies to people working in physical health situations, although the the two are very often paired. You know, it's kind yeah. of upsetting to have your physical body hurt, and when the mind is not doing well, the body um, rarely thrives. Right, or or even just being exposed to things like like right now, all of the doctors and nurses and other medical professionals being exposed to COVID and putting their lives lives on the line and their health on the line as well as families in some instance by trying to help people um yeah it, it does strike me a little bit as representative of the mars aquarius saturn aquarius this sort of i i often think about mars in an air sign as describing what could be disturbances in the mind or disturbances in the thinking processes and that aggravation that Mars does, which can see an increase in things like anxiety and other mental health concerns. And that's something that is starting to get a little bit of press right now for the health workers and just for the general population with with the levels of isolation and disconnect. But I think we're going to see a lot more of that being talked about and discussed, particularly, you know, as we look into May and see Mars making a few changes. But that idea of talking more about mental health and taking care of our mindset seems very much connected to some of this air sign emphasis. Definitely. Sure. I especially see that with Mars and air signs. Mars and air signs is it's like the ambient anxiety levels are always higher. Yeah. Because Mars Mars kind of spins its gears in or its wheels yes. or propellers in air signs. There's not um there's not a it's not the right element to get traction. And so you have that getting spun up, but not necessarily having anything to do about it, which results in, you know, the experience of which is anxiety. Sure. Um, All right. So just to check in, since it's been a month now, I wanted to give, do a little news segment. I mean, part of the news is checking in about where things have come over the past month since we did our last episode in terms of the pandemic uh, with COVID-19. So I was looking up some numbers on the Johns Hopkins University website um, today before we started this episode, and here's a little map that they have on their website to show for the video viewers to show confirmed cases, and they're saying that there's over 3 million confirmed cases worldwide as of today, April 28th, 2020. Um, There's been over 212,000 deaths. Uh, 212,000 deaths, almost 1 million cases have been diagnosed in the US alone, and there's been over 55,000 deaths from the coronavirus in the United States, uh, and most of these occurred within the past month. And some of those numbers 
uh, are coming from the Washington Post that has a a graph and a list of like the number of deaths that have been reported as well as the number of new reported cases that have been reported each day. So wanted to mention that just because that kind of sets the tone for what the last month has been like in the world in general and sort of wh where we are going into May before we get to the forecast as well as checking in in terms of any statements that we made last month where we were focused so much on the Mars-Saturn conjunction and the continuation of that co-presence that we'll come back to and talk a lot about this episode. Other news though before we get there, last month we weren't sure yet because it hadn't been finalized I don't think, but the Northwest Astrology Conference did formally announce that they were canceling their in-person conference and they were switching it to an entirely online conference due to the pandemic. Um, so they still took a major financial hit due to the hotel and due to the, some of the contracts and negotiations with the hotel, but um, it's actually kind of an opportunity now for a lot of people because they're opening up their um, ability to sign up for new registrants so that um, anybody could sign up for the conference and they're going to have all of the same lectures, which actually had a really amazing lecture lineup this year, are going to be available as online webinars. And um, it's going to be streamed live the day of the conference. And then if you sign up for the full conference, you get access to every lecture, I think, for a two-week period after the conference is over, which is something kind of unique that you never would have gotten previously if you like attended it in person. And you can just see you know, a certain number of lectures um, while you're there. So you guys are both speaking at that conference this year, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, we are. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of a bummer that the in-person conference isn't happening, but I'm glad at least that they're still doing an, an online conference. Yeah, I'm totally bummed not to, you know, see everyone and hang out in the bar in between, but it'll be fun to at least be able to share the material and have those connections online. Uh, I think it is kind of cool that everyone will have access to the lectures for two weeks after the fact, because I don't know about you, but when I attend a conference live, I can get to only just a few lectures, not all of them, but, you know, over two weeks, I'd have the chance to, to see them all, um, which I think is kind of cool. And then, yeah, Austin and I are actually both giving workshops at the end of that conference. So Monday, May 25th, um, I'll be teaching on the predictive pot of gold, how to combine transits and progressions in your forecast. And Austin, what are you presenting on? I think something special. Oh, the Deccans. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to spend an afternoon going through all 36 and then uh, going over some some Deccan specific techniques that we can find in traditional texts. Yeah. And so the conference itself is 275 for the full conference, US dollars. Um, Austin's workshop and my workshop, if you want to attend as part of the conference, it's $100 to add that on to your conference registration. And if you just want to come to either Austin's workshop or my workshop, you can do just that and it's $130. Yeah. So, so that's pr lots of options. Cool. Yeah. I'm glad that they're doing that and I hope that works out. I'm sure it will work out. I, I mean, it seems like it's working out pretty well so far. Here's the website, which is norwac.net. Um, if you want to get more information, sign up for the newsletter or what have you. Um, I hope they get a decent turnout because um, that's one of the real threats is because of what a huge financial investment these conferences are. That's one of the reasons they happen not that frequently. And um, I know there was one in 2008 that happened 
where a single guy was organizing it, and it happened right around the time of the financial collapse. Uh, um, yeah. And he lost a lot of money, and then he never did any more of those conferences. So I'm hoping people sort of take that into account when they're looking at Norwalk and thinking about signing up as wanting to support it, not just to get the information involved and everything, but also in terms of things to help the, the community keep going. Um, so you can find out more information about that at norwak.net. Um, in other news, the other major conference this mm. year is the International Society for Astrological Research is still saying that they're going to hold their conference uh, in Denver, Colorado in September. They're still waiting to see what happens, but they're not going to make any final decisions until June or July is what I'm being told, but that things are still tentatively scheduled to happen. Um, they're looking into other options and, and other contingency plans, but it sounds like it's another situation where uh, they're even more sort of tied into contractual stuff with the hotel so that it could be disastrous if it didn't happen for some reason in terms of both um, ESAR and ESAR's just financial situation as well as ESAR's ability to contribute to future conferences like the next United Astrology Conference where talks are already starting to happen about having that take place in 2020 at some point. And if uh, the ESAR conference completely fell through, it might essentially remove their ability to be a player in that conference. So yeah, so I'm hoping the ESAR conference still happens to some extent, although it's interesting then if it was to happen in September, they're talking about how to how to do a conference safely in this context and like what safety looks like in terms of what you what what you would have to put in place in order to do a conference safely um, and still make it like fun and and like it was normally. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one because I'm I know it's a little further out than some countries have announced travel restrictions around, but I think it's going to be very hard for people to get into the states um, from outside mm -hmm. the country at that time. And mm -hmm. most countries will potentially still be insisting on a quarantine period. So, you know, that in and of itself could be prohibitive for people wanting to come into the US to attend that conference. So it's. I don't envy them. They're in such a tough position to uh, to try and make a decision around this. Yeah, and and even like, I was thinking like if they did do it in person, like do you what what do you require? What can you require? Like should everybody wear? Because I'm thinking about like you know 50, 60 people being packed into a small lecture room. Like remember some of the lecture rooms at UAC, and like do people need to wear masks? Is that something that's optional? Is that something that is like should be required? Should everybody be wearing masks? Um, thinking about some of those logistical issues was starting to hurt my head in terms of what you would do in that instances. And obviously, they would have some really tough decisions to make there as well. So uh, we'll check in again about that at some point in the future. But in the meantime, that's where we're currently at in terms of in terms of that news. Have you guys? had any other news or things going on in the past month that you wanted to mention or talk about? I mean, we could talk about baking recipes, maybe. I mean, this is what Zoom calls with everyone is like, so what have we been up to? Just hanging out at home. <laughs> well, so I actually have a point connected to the bait, to the, the, um, the sur the baking surge, of, the baking surge. Uh, April, <laughs> of April, 2020. No, I was just thinking about, I was thinking about that and a couple other things and how it is not Uranus in Taurus, which has which timed this epidemic, it was Mars, Saturn, Pluto. Um, but 
maybe some Jupiter too. Um, but you can see the um, you know what has been happening and what will continue to happen it happen um, sort of executing on all of Uranus and Taurus's historical um, uh, historical moves, right? Um, like big volatility and disruptions in food supply mm -hmm. um, and in food production methods. Um, right. So I had a couple things. There are a couple. Well, um, and <clears throat> yeah. So there's that. There is oh um, disruptions around labor, right? Because not only not only are people a lot of people not going to work, but people are also rethinking work, right? A lot yeah. of what were referred to as shit jobs two months ago are now uh, essential jobs. Um, and you know you see what you see what kind of work is actually necessary. Uh, for a society to uh, not fall apart, um, and then there's for also a, just a, kind essential, of essential, quote unquote, essential. Right. Well, and there's um, there there there's some questionable choices um, being made there. There are lots of questionable choices being made these days. Um, but then, and then also on a sort of a deeper level with Venus and or not Venus and Taurus, Uranus and Taurus, questions of what is valuable. Right. What mm. what has what is actually valuable? Like, uh, what what should we be prioritizing? Um, you know, I think a lot of things have been thrown. A, a lot of priorities and ideas about what's valuable, and necessary, have been uh, thrown into stark relief. Right. I think a lot of people are reassessing um, what they thought was important, uh, essential within their own lives, even. And that's all classic Uranus and Taurus stuff. Right. And so yeah, you can see great. that as like, like a, a rider that's, that's, on all this. That was a great list because I just saw a story about something like uh, like Tyson Foods announcing in a story just in the past day that the food supply chain was breaking down, and that's a great like Uranus and Taurus manifestation in terms of some of the things. Also, lots of people in industries who previously were only that were only done in person suddenly like finding ways to do a variation of that industry online in order to like make money online and change to that uh to you know speak to your point yeah that's a lot of really interesting manifestations of uranus and taurus that are coming out in in not su surprising ways but ways that make a lot of sense right now yeah, well, and it, it's uh, you know I, this this just occurred to me I think yesterday as I was kind of going over like what do I have to say on the podcast and I think it's uh, this is uh, in part more obvious because we just had a new moon in Taurus on top of Uranus and so it was you know it's like kind of right there but yeah Kelly <laughs> uh, Kelly bringing up the baking surge made me think of it <laughs> uh, we did some we, Kate did some uh, some successful and some unsuccessful baking experiments right Uranus and Taurus baking experiments recently there is a a keto pizza crust recipe which had rave huh. reviews and was uh, in uh, one of the greatest disappointments of our shared life oh. I'm so sorry to hear. We'll have to trade. Yeah. It's a real um, tragedy. I have some recipes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to trade. I have some um, GFDF, gluten-free, dairy-free, pizza crust recipes that would definitely qualify as keto. Yeah. but the, And the thing with the baking is that people are making stuff from scratch, which I think is so Uranus in Taurus. Like people are trying to do sourdough starters at home or, you know, baked goods, not from a box, but actually mixing the ingredients. I mean, 
we, Peter and I do like to cook a lot, but I'd never, like there's recipes that are a little bit more complicated that we had never previously attempted. And one of the ones we're so proud of is a Indian butter chicken dish that Mm. has, it has ghee in it, but other than that, it doesn't have cream and it was amazing. Um, easier than we expected it to be. So things like that, that you wouldn't normally think, like we normally wouldn't be like, make the time, you know, to do it. So I think, right, I, I, well, and to- yeah, totally co-sign on that, the Uranus and Taurus rider. Well, and the, um, what you were saying there about making things from scratch, like being inventive, innovative, original, these are all Uranus keywords with very material, basic things. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, Taurus. Flour, uh, eggs. Not everybody who was born <laughs> under the sign of Taurus is basic, but Taurus does connect us to a lot of basic where we could say fundamental things like, well, what are you going to do about food, right? Mm-hmm. Where does the food come from? If yeah. if if you can't, if, uh, if the restaurant will not make you the food you like, how are you going to get the food you like? Yeah. So I love that. Yeah. Totally. Um, in terms of like supply stuff breaking down, one of the things that's interesting that I only noticed just because I'm a podcaster and trying to do interviews this month is you cannot get um, webcams and, and microphones that I've been trying to send out that I'd normally just like order on Amazon and they'd be there in a few days. I can't send them out to guests because everybody is now talking online using Zoom in order to communicate or do their job or everything else. And all that stuff is just like sold out, which is a really interesting thing that I only happen to notice as a podcaster. But going back to your point, Austin. Actually, okay. What? Go ahead. I just had one quick thing to add that I I think that's really interesting. So, you know, even though there are a lot of, you know, business, business as a whole is way down, but there are certain goods and there are certain services that now are in massive demand. And that's the Uranus and Taurus thing. It's not like everything is sloped down. It's volatile and spiky. And the thing, one thing, you know, one company is going to have three times the profit that they expected, whereas five others are going to have one third. And anyway, I just wanted to add that. Yeah. No, the the spiky is good. Yeah. There's a particular company in Canada that I get some of my natural health food products from. And for about a four week period, they're like, we are only taking a certain amount of orders a day because we're just overwhelmed right now. And we need time to get through our backlog. Um, And I was like, how can you not be taking orders? But they were so overwhelmed that they just couldn't keep up. Chris, sorry. Yeah, just so and, and there's about something the I want to come back to later when we get into the forecast that's happening this month about Jupiter stationing conjunct Pluto and just the immense shifts in wealth and, and amounts of money that are shifting around right now that I think are very much connected with that conjunction of Jupiter-Pluto. Yeah, that I definitely want to talk about later. But just going back to do a little bit, there's a little bit of a thing following up on some of the predictions and the statements we made in our last forecast that have been working out in interesting ways, especially over the past few days that you mentioned, Austin, as the sun moved into Taurus especially and started to come up and conjoined Uranus over the past week, it's been interesting seeing, I remember you, Austin, saying that uh, you really were expecting people to start getting a little stir crazy by that point or something to that effect um, due to the lockdown. And over the past week, we've really started to see not just that happened, but then suddenly this push, at least in the US, for for a lessening of the restrictions and some of the arguments surrounding that. Yeah, I mean, we literally saw right around that new moon, um, uh, uh, I don't know, a dozen um, in-person protests about this all over the US. It was, That's yeah, right. that was, 
that was, it was very literal. Yeah. I think I said, I said something about like, people are going to, you know, Uranus is very like, um, give me freedom or give me death. Like it, it stirs up that like, you know, um, <laughs> Mel Gibson, Braveheart energy. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that with that Saturn, uh, Saturn squaring Uranus, which we're going to get a lot of next year. Um, but we're getting a preview of now seeing the sun and moon on top of Uranus. I just, I just, yeah, I just guessed that people would be fucking over it or a, a certain, uh, a, a, a noticeable amount of people would be fucking ready for something. Which was tri tricky because some of that was just like, um, astroturfed or was being manipulated by whoever that was trying to push for opening up the economy and things like that again, in order to create artificial protest movements. But then obviously some of it and a lot of it was genuine as well in terms of after a month, a uh, large decent segment of the population wanting a lessening of the restrictions and the tension between those two polar opposites really manifesting around the time of that new moon in Taurus that went exact on April 22nd. Yep. So, and just to, there's a little Washington Post story just to sort of give some objective like evidence for that. The date was April 25th, and it just says reopening of America accelerates as states prepare to relax coronavirus restrictions. So, what we're seeing there is obviously not just the new moon that's taking place or, or that took place on the 22nd conjunct Uranus very closely within three degrees, but also, um, you know, we're ha at the halfway point by then of Mars making its way through. Aquarius and finally getting some distance. So by the 22nd, it was up to 15 degrees away from Saturn. And um, by May, as we'll start talking about soon, Mars will finally leave Aquarius and move into Pisces in the middle of May, finally completing at least the sign-based conjunction or co-presence with Saturn, which um, so much of the lockdowns, at least in the US, have been centered, centered around. Yeah, I mean, and that was the timeline. That was the the timeline we gave for when, like, the hard the hard quarantine phase would be over. Most places was when Mars left co presence with Saturn in mid May, and things appear to be, um, how should we say, uh, on their way to validating that prediction. One other quick recap from April. I think, Chris, you had picked April 18 as the election for that month where we had those double sextiles with Mercury, Venus, and then Mercury, Mars. Mm -hmm. And I was Le thinking Le about Lisa that. Lisa picked that. Lisa picked it, sorry. Um, yeah, that you had shared that, and that's Lisa's, uh, Lisa's work. So definitely let's give sure. Lisa the contribution there. Um, but I, I, that was when they were that big together at home concert where a number of top musicians and artists around the world came together and performed. I think they were like live streaming on YouTube. I saw a performance that had Celine Dion, Andrea Bocelli, Lady Gaga, and John Legend. And I think there was a series over that weekend, um, which I just thought, you know, we had picked, well, Lisa had picked that weekend as the election. And we talked about that being a weekend where there were a couple of sort of decent aspects that month. So we had... We didn't have the in-person gathering, but there was this sort of musical community coming together online. Well, and yeah, that's really Mercury, cool. Mercury Venus sextile perfect is great for the arts. Yeah. Yeah, we've, I love when that happens. Yeah. When uh, we pick out elections each month, just like looking at what not just the best chart is, but sometimes the most notable or like dynamic chart is for starting something. 
and then sometimes like important events fall on that date just of their own accord. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I know somebody either I, has an astrologer or good intuition. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Well, I know, and then some astrologers. I, I saw a tweet by Marin Altman, who's a listener and a patron, the other day, saying that she loves waiting for the release of our auspicious elections podcast each month, where we put out like four of the best electional charts we can find for the next month, because she likes to stack up like and see if how her electional charts that she's picking out each month stack up against the ones we're picking out. And it's always interesting seeing different astrologers comparing and contrasting like what the best day they think for starting different things is in a given month. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes you'll end up with overlaps like that. All right. Um, let's see. So other news before we get onto the forecast. Um, I did I don't know if you guys want to go into this. I've one of the th- I was like sick and like not paying attention to anything for weeks and was off social media. I came back and I was actually really shocked by like the surge oh, in the surge in crazy it's been a mad conspiracy theories. Yeah, I mean I realize that there's just news and lots of stuff happening each day, but like glancing at like Facebook was a shock because there was just a lot of crazy stuff and Austin when you and I talked about this, you were emphasize I should be clear that I'm talking about not like mainstream light conspiracy theories but more like extreme kind of wacky stuff about like 5G being the cause of the coronavirus and like Bill Gates trying to enslave humanity and all sorts of weird stuff that was going on and I don't know if we get greater exposure to it because we're in the astrological community which has sometimes more alternative type views and things, or if this is just something going around in general. But it was a very weird experience for me to come back to like not paying attention to what was going on very much, and then all of a sudden, yeah, seeing that. Yeah. Well, so a couple things on that. Um, I've been, I've been, well, I've been, I've been thinking about what's been happening in the world, like literally all of us. Um, and one of the things I came to that then this came about through a discussion with my, my patrons that I did, uh, four or five days ago was that, so the, there is a great hunger for figure to figure out what the story is right now. Um, mm. this, this set of events broke a lot of what people thought the story was. Right. Like the, you know, like, oh, we're doing this and society's doing this and we're going in this direction. And it's um, the events of the last two months have blatantly invalidated a lot of the timelines people had. And, you know, stories are not um, primarily entertainment, they are literally how we set expectations and think about ourselves in the context of the world. Right. Every anytime you connect multiple events in a sequence with where they're, you know, living human or where there are conscious beings involved, it's a story. Right. One story is I expect this the sun rises in the morning. If that story got disrupted, it would fuck up not only <laughs> my expectations about the day, but it would it would also mess with all of the um all of the other stories that that, that little unit um plays a role in. And so I think people are, well, I see people and, and myself as well, just like, so what is going on? And I think what's going on, there is a, uh, there's a simple thing like, oh, there's a plague going on, but there's a ton of other shit happening and trying to f- 
figure out what the shape of that is, what it means, what it means for all these different people and different layers and all of that. Um, you know, there, there's not just that, that is not simply a thing that we're curious about, right? Um, this is a giant and in many ways dangerous thing on a lot of different levels, whether we're talking about uh, physical danger from, uh, from a disease uh, or the, the danger of our societies getting reshaped uh, in a way that uh, is very much for the worse, right? And we have highly suspicious things like the, the movement of trillions of dollars, like you were saying, Chris, with the Jupiter-Pluto, boy, is there a lot of money moving around. Um, and, you know, um, uh, yeah. And so I think it's really like, ugh, you add that with, you add that to everybody's trapped on the internet for a month um, and you get all kinds of stories. Right. I, yeah, I guess I just, um, as a, as a Scorpio, I was telling Nina in the last episode that I just recorded, which I'll actually release before this one, where we did a whole discussion on the birth chart of the United States. It's actually going to be a really great episode. I'm excited to release it probably today or tomorrow. Um, but towards the end of it, we started talking about, we were trying to talk about what were the actual documented times that could have been the birth chart of the United States that were like plausible times based on whatever historical primary evidence we have versus here are some of the weird charts like the Gemini rising chart for the United States is set for like 2 a.m. and basically requires to work like for some reason some weird Freemason or like a cult sort of type conspiracy in order for that to even be plausible and doesn't really make sense then and probably isn't plausible because the founders of the country probably were not up at 2 a.m. doing some sort of weird magical thing in order to sign the Declaration of Independence. And anyway, the point that I made towards the end of that is I'm often um, torn as a as a Scorpio stellium as somebody who, on the one hand, is open to and interested in those occasional instances in history where you see like a cult or divinatory topics being used by people in power in weird ways that have actually been documented, like Reagan using an astrologer or Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. Um, being found with like a Jupiter talisman or something when he died, uh, for example. But then uh, there's also just a lot of other instances where that stuff gets overapplied, and people, the like Scorpio function of people to dig in deep and find the truth or find the hidden truth underlying things sometimes goes berserk or malfunctions, and people um, do that too much, and they try to find or uncover or sometimes invent. A more elaborate conspiracy than what's actually happening, where things are often much more simple and much more straightforward than you than you want to believe or than you realize. That was a little bit yeah, of what well, I was I mean, feeling. I, I will just say, you know, Ben Franklin was, you know, wrote an astrologically timed almanac. So, you know, well, there were people in in those no, circles we, we actually who talked, had we actually who, talked who about that in the that idea episode, of timing. which is that that's a, that's a misapprehension. Because Benjamin Franklin wrote a satirical thing where he attacked astrologers, and he sometimes mistakenly believed believed to have been an astrologer um, in modern times. But that's because there's like Facebook memes that circulate of him saying something positive about astrology. But in fact, if you read the full context, he was actually mocking like other almanac makers who actually believed in it. So that's like one of those conspiracy things where sometimes people like 
have a perception or believe that the founding fathers were like definitely into astrology, but we don't have as much evidence for that as like it would be nice to ideally, you know, as an astrologer myself. Okay. Um, but yeah, I didn't get that off Facebook, but um, uh, no, I'd, I'd be interested to listen to the episode. I don't really like the 2 a.m. time anyway. I'm, I'm a little ride or die with the Sag rising chart. The Sibley chart. It just chart. works yeah, so do you guys well. have strong, strong opinions about the birth chart of the U.S.? I probably, so I probably I would, don't have I'll, as strong do, an opinion as you guys. I, I, I actually don't. Yeah. I just really, um, I, I think that one, it's a nation. Um, nations are different than human babies. Um, and that you can have multiple charts applying um, and being useful for different purposes for, um, for a nation in a way that's not true as for a human baby. Um, what I have found is that the Sag rising chart for the U.S. is tremendously descriptive and also has a lot of predictive value. Mm. So, yeah. um, which isn't to say that no other chart can, um, but I have been convinced of its efficacy uh, over the years. Sure. That's what a beautiful point. Yeah, just Austin, what you were saying about countries are a little bit different to people. Um, in Australia, we have a similar thing where there's sort of two commonly used charts. One of them is the first settlement landing of Captain James Cook coming in 1788, um, which my dear friend and now deceased colleague Ed Tamplin was a big proponent of. Um, but there's also the Federation chart of January 1901 when Australia achieved a level of independence, defining it as its own nation under the British crown, but in a way that was more self-governing. And that 1901 chart works very well when you're doing timing for Australia in, in modern context, if you like. It was sort of the founding of the government rather than founding of the, the land by white settlement, if you like. Um, so that idea of like different charts, um, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. And just the debate, the debate over them and sometimes astrologers coming to different conclusions. Um, based on like what their preferred chart is that seems to work better in, in their opinion based on whatever interpretation or timing they've done. Um, anyway, you guys should check out that episode. It's a good episode. My entire point though with this little segment was just one of the things I wanted to say is just that becoming an astrologer doesn't mean that you have to leave your critical thinking at the door. And I think that's kind of important or it's something I want to remind people about in this age where a lot of cons crazy conspiracy theories are going around is that it doesn't necessarily mean you subscribe to some of those things or have to just because you're into what other people might classify as like new agey or alternative or other type of uh, sort of thinking when it comes to astrology. And I think that's something we've always or that I've always tried to, you know, do here on the podcast and show by um, not by experience, but leading by example in terms of trying to put in research and like have good reasons and not just pull stuff out of thin air, even when you're talking about a subject that's often treated less seriously in the world in general, such as astrology. So that's my little soapbox for that. Um, I think that's it in terms of um, major topics that we covered. Um, I also did the Alan White lecture. Uh, Kelly, you never had the the opportunity did to meet not. Alan White, sadly. Uh, Austin, you, you did. Do you have any major memories or recollections worth sharing? 
Oh, let's see. You know what was what was great about you putting out the Alan White episode is I just like taught like a fifteen minute Alan White thing in my um in my year one class, I believe. Yeah, it was in my year one class, like the day before. And so and, you know, I was telling people about Alan White and then you came out with that. It was uh, beautifully timed. Nice. I love it. Um let's see. I don't I don't even remember what, what bit it was. Um, but yeah. Sep, uh, the the septiles and reptiles and floor, flooring tiles bit went over quite well. Right. It was one of his like classic lines about he would be dismissive of like modern astrologers using a bunch of minor aspects. He would say, everybody's using septiles and reptiles and ceiling tiles <laughs> these days. Oh my God, that's brilliant. I, I haven't had a chance to watch that episode yet, but I look forward to it. And his his cadence makes uh, made it even better. He had this, yeah. you know, reptiles and ceiling tiles, and you know, it's not. It wasn't. Plu- <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't Pluto. It was Pluto. Um, you know, he was. He I had this it. sort of drill instructor um, quality. Yeah, like the guy from um, Full Metal Jacket. Uh, so, and he also pronounced uh, Libra. He called it. Uh, he said Libra. I always loved his pronunciation of 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 Libra. Um, so yeah, that was, I was glad I finally released that. I was a little nervous and I recorded a long intro because I was not trying to get flamed by my audience for any sort of somewhat gruff or like harsh comments that he would, he made, um, since I might make them differently or maybe not that strongly, but I hope I didn't go too far in like saying too much stuff like that because I wanted to still give him credit and sort of honor his memory, um, by putting that lecture out. Um, so that was the other thing, and the only other episode I've done this month because I basically just did a bunch in the past week was with Becca Tarnas. Once I started getting better and started being able to record episodes again, and we focused a lot in the later part of the episode on the Saturn Pluto conjunction, which obviously is something we talked about a lot extensively in the last episode. But one of the things that was cool that we did towards the end of it that I hope people stuck around the entire time for was focusing just on how. If this is the conjunction that we're going through right now, and this is setting the stage for the next 30 to 40 years, then what dates exactly are the next hard aspects, which will be extensions of that cycle? If, if we're setting the seeds of the foundations for the next 30 or 40 years now, either geopolitically or otherwise, um, when is the, the waxing square when Saturn squares Pluto? And when is the opposition, the next opposition between Saturn and Pluto halfway through the cycle? And when eventually is the waning square and the next following conjunction that closes down and completes the cycle, and identifying some of those dates and how far in the future some of it is uh, was really interesting to me in terms of starting to think of the long-term projections for this, um, in terms of us seeing the opening of a chapter that's going to last for a very long time in world history in the same way that the conjunction in um, the 19-teens or 1910s opened up a period of world history that didn't end until after, just after World War II was over, but how you could see everything that started at the beginning of that conjunction around the opening of World War I set up history for everything that would occur over the course of the next 30 years. So that's um, something that was a lot of fun and was interesting. Have you looked at that, like the future cycles or long-term planetary alignments? Yeah, I mean it's something I spend time with. I haven't 
Uh, I haven't looked a lot at like the the quartering of the Saturn Pluto cycle forward from here. I've been more interested in thinking about the next twenty years of the Jupiter Saturn cycle as a more mm. not not exactly bite size. Two decades is still not bite size at all, but it's um it's less right, <laughs> and also just yeah. the like the next ten years has it has a lot of astrology. There's a yeah, uh, there's well, a, a lot to too. remark on. Like the further yeah. you get into history, obviously the more difficult it becomes to predict because your context, you get further and further away from the context and the trajectories that you currently know. Um, so certainly focusing on the next 10 to 20 years is more manageable than like 40, 50 years out. Yeah. Well, and sometimes, you know, for example, with um, Saturn Pluto and uh, or Saturn Ur or Uranus Pluto uh, as well, what they mark, what the conjunctions and oppositions mark is usually some crazy shit that traumatizes the world and changes everything for the next 10 or 20 years. And so you can know that something like that might be due at a given time, but you don't know what you you just know that something of that nature happens then you don't know what it is and but you do know that whatever your whatever um timelines and event structures you can project up to that point will be disrupted and then we'll go in a different direction. Right. Um, one of the things I didn't realize that was really solid when we were talking about the previous Saturn-Pluto conjunctions of the 20th century, where like the one that started with World War One was like really on the nose and was really close within a year of starting World War One or within a few months. Um, then the one that happened just after World War II when the Cold War was really getting started was pretty on the nose and was pretty close. The one though in 1981 people often treat as well, nothing major happened during that time. But one of the things that was really interesting is that's 1981 was really the year that the AIDS epidemic became a full-blown thing and became fully classified and, and discussed and I think officially announced by the World Health Organization at that time. And I think the parallel with this current conjunction is really interesting. We're very close to this current conjunction. We have a new, you know, health pandemic that gets officially recognized around the same time as well. Mm -hmm. And the previous two both had big disease things as well. It was uh, polio around polio. The, uh, the one, the one, in the late forties, and it was, it was what what became what later was called the Spanish flu, but didn't come from Spain. It actually developed in the horrid health conditions of the trenches in World War One. Um, so we have big yeah. disease for all of those. And I would say that so the Saturn, Pluto, and Libra. It's Saturn, and it's in its. It's graceful exaltation, and so a lot of the the big power moves because all of these are Saturn Pluto's always big power moves, right? The big power move then that was when the arc of how should we say the uh, a lot of the corporatization of culture, which is of culture and governmental structure, et cetera, et cetera, which has become normal in the United States. That's when all of that started. Um, there's a whole lot, um, there are a whole lot of things that are just kind of normal, um, now in our hyper-capitalism, late capitalism, whatever you want to call it. And all of that was getting going during the Saturn-Pluto conjunction in the, uh, in the early eighties. Sure. Well, it's even just interesting with AIDS in 1981 and the sign that it took place in being Libra, 
and just the f- effect that that had on like relationships and sexual relationships and everything else. Like I've heard some older people talk about like the period between there being like this 10 or 20 year period between like the advent of birth control mm-hmm. uh, in like the 60s and 70s versus the extreme change that suddenly happened then in the 80s uh, when sometimes like a sexual relationship with somebody could be like a life sentence or could result in could death. Be a death sentence. Yeah. 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 Uh, you could never, th- there were consequences to irresponsible sexual behavior before, but they did not used to include death. Yeah. Sure. So it's interesting. I don't know if you're thinking about the sign placements, because that's something that's not focused on in, for example, like Tarnas's approach, who, who probably has the best approach to treating outer planet cycles. And it's the approach where everybody's rereading Cosmos and Psyche right now. And I, I know there's some younger astrologers doing like a book club on Cosmos and Psyche this month on Twitter, which I definitely encourage everybody to to read and, and join. I'll see if I can put a link to that. And I may re-release my old episode that I did with Richard Tarnas on the 10th anniversary of the release of Cosmos and Psyche I did back in 2006. I don't have a video version, but I'll try to create a video version this month to release on YouTube. Um, he focuses primarily on more of that Keplerian approach to astrology that's just aspect-based and based on planetary cycles and doesn't focus on the signs of the zodiac as much. But it's interesting maybe comparing then if that was if the AIDS epidemic was a Pluto-Saturn conjunction in Libra, what then the contrast is with the Pluto-Saturn conjunction in Capricorn and what we're seeing now. Yeah, I would say that um well, uh I suppose to begin the nature of what happened during the Saturn-Pluto conjunction in Capricorn is not sufficiently clear yet. We may, we're going to need a little bit of distance. Sure. Um, but with Saturn being in its home sign, it's just sort of blatantly Saturnian, right? Like it's, it's plague, it's control, it's big money. You know, it's like just all like read it out of like read negative Capricorn things out of any, out of any book. And it's kind of where we're at. Um, with the sign thinking with the signs though the one that happened in the late 40s following world war II was in leo and so the yeah. the you know the containing boundary thing that happened there was that the the modern boundaries for a hundred different countries were set then like all of these yeah. borders uh happened a lot of countries were rearranged then and so we have the sun we have leo we have like what is what is the exact space uh, over which uh, this country is sovereign. Where does that? Yes. Where does that end? Right. Yeah, I forgot. I forgot about that. That many of our our Pluto and Leo friends have that Saturn Pluto conjunction in Leo in the, like the nineteen forties. Yeah. 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 Let's see. My so mom when, has that. Was that? Yeah, my papa. Same, there it same. is. So yeah, between like nineteen forty six, forty seven, and. Um, 1949 ish. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What were you going to say, Kelly? Yeah, just, I'm just thinking about that. Um, so many things. You guys are just sharing such really d- deep, rich material. Um, the Saturn Pluto now, Austin, your point around uh, Capricorn and like the really negative Capricorn things, there is this sort of. Ex- the, the Pluto is sort of intensifying and creating this extreme quality to um, 
you know, money and power, but big money and big power like government control or the power that a company has because they're just bigger or they have more money than anyone else. So there's this real concentration there that, you know, when supply chains were started to be disrupted um, in February and March and then through April, you know, certain bigger companies were able to grab market share because certain smaller companies maybe couldn't meet demand or keep up. There's just been this real rearrangement with with money and power that I think it will take a take some time, as you said. We need a bit of distance to actually see what has gone on with that um, these new alliances or new concentrations of power and control having been formed. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it rearranges the um, the chessboard or the game board significantly. Yeah, I mean, uh, and so just on an anecdotal level, you know, you go out or I've you know I've gone out and the like the big box store national chain is open, but the small businesses are closed, which mm-hmm. has um, upsetting implications if that carries forward. Yes, we we don't we don't need yes. more monoculture. We no. need more small businesses. Yeah. The um, keyword that I came up with in my episode with Becca, where we were talking about Saturn and Pluto cycles, uh, was um, stress testing. Like, if there are in the world in general or in the economy, if there's like cracks um, in it where the foundations or some part of it is unstable, like what happens when you put um, an extreme amount of pressure on that area and does it hold up and does it survive that period of an exp- extreme amount of pressure or? Are the cracks serious enough that it it actually reaches the breaking point and falls? Mm. And this being like that period where if there are cracks in society, then this stress test becomes the point where where some of those um, powers it becomes um, unstable and not sustainable. So yeah, I think- um, you probably can't see it, but I literally wrote down and circled pressure testing. Um, pressure test for things I wanted to talk about. Okay. Um, and, uh, Kel- I, I have a, a little point about that that I'd like to make, but Kelly, yeah. please feel free. To oh, go first. I, I mean, I was just going to say it, it's, it's sort of these weird extremes of like the big is getting bigger, but some of the smaller, um, companies or organizations, like almost at a micro level are able to pivot and move a little bit more quickly there's there's something really weird about being on either end of the spectrum and that being a way of managing, but the people in the middle that like aren't super big but aren't small enough to change quickly or organizations. Um, and then the second point is about the the pressure testing and the stress testing. Something like this really reveals the weaknesses in social structures and mm. government protections or lack thereof. And that's something that I think is being really re- revealed is what is happening to the undersupported and the um, the marginalized, for instance. It's, it's, I mean, it's devastating and hopefully it can be revelatory and change-inducing. Right. Well, it'll With be, like so it's, many people living pay- paycheck to paycheck, what happens if, you know, economy is shut down and everybody can't go to work? And for you like don't get all two. of a sudden you have no notice and no paycheck. Right. Yeah, I, w- I would say it's going to be it's revelatory whether that's good or bad. Um, that's exactly you know, in, it. in the yeah. original yeah. sense of revealing or the sheet getting pulled back. Um, so yeah, one really useful um, way of thinking about how things respond to big pressure and big stress um, comes out of the work of Nassim Taleb, 
who I would strongly <gasps> uh, suggest exploring. Um, he's the person who popularized, who really, uh, he, he pulled it from Roman literature, but he basically coined the black swan term um, when, and did an excellent job of predicting the last economic downturn. And one of the, one of his like things to think with um, is just, is in relationship to how do things respond to stress? Are they fragile where they can't tolerate much pressure? Are they robust where they kind of remain the same regardless of how much pressure is around? Or are they anti-fragile? Do they actually gain from being stressed? And mm. so he gave as an example, there are certain part, uh, qualities of the human body, such as um, muscles, that actually gain from mm. being very strongly challenged, right? Where, yeah. where there are other things like, like this mason jar that do not gain from being challenged at all. It's fragile, right? And so it's, it's just like a quick one, two, three category way of thinking about how does something respond to stress? How is, is this part of my life fragile, robust, or anti-fragile? Is this business, um, you know, fragile, robust, or anti-fragile? And he's got a bunch of um, lectures on YouTube and a bunch of very, very good, but very dense books. Yeah, on your recommendation, I've been following him on Twitter and he is incredibly thought-provoking and clear. I'm like, I can see why you like him and I love that you've pointed me towards him. So that's a great tip to share with everyone. He's um, he's also not afraid to, um, I believe they call it shitpost on Twitter about yeah. um, <laughs> abstruse mathematical probability calculations. Yeah. Good times. Uh, all right, guys, shall we transition into talking about the month of May? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. All right. That was fun. We've, re we've reverted back to our old format that we did for many years of like catching up and yes. talking about all of our stuff as we would do if we were just like three astrologers sitting around in person uh, regularly, but we only get to do this once, once a month. Um, hopefully at some point once things calm down, maybe, and there's less like important pressing stuff to catch up on, we'll revert back to the old format of doing the the forecast first. But uh, now that it's been we're an hour and 11 minutes into this, why don't we jump into it? All right. So plan. Me, that's the plan. All right. Let me share the chart first for those watching the video version. Um, so this is our artwork for the month made by our friend from Brazil, Paula Bellomini, um, who's an astrologer. And this chart shows is actually sort of from our, our yearly calendar, which shows where the planets will start in the signs of the zodiac at the beginning of the month and where they will end up by the end of the month. So, so it sort of shows you how fast or how slow in many instances some of the planets are going this month and what signs they'll be moving through. Uh, the other chart, of course, is from our planetary alignments calendar, which just shows primarily the um, the conjunctions and the lunations and the planetary stations and ingresses during the course of the month of May. So there's a decent amount of stuff. There's a lot of stuff going on this month. Most of it's really concentrated to that, what do we call it, the second week basically, with the second full week, which is between May 10th and May 16th, where we have Saturn stationing retrograde in Aquarius, Mars finally departing from Aquarius and moving into Pisces, uh, thus completing the full Saturn-Mars conjunction, yes. Venus stationing retrograde in Gemini, and Jupiter stationing retrograde conjunct Pluto in Capricorn. So it is a 
relatively packed month, but it's kind of weird because it's all concentrated. At least the the major stuff is really concentrated over that that second full week of the month. Yeah, it's very part one and part two. There's before that week and then after that week. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot goes down in a few days in the middle of a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I mean we've all been looking forward to this period because. Um, I th- the two primary things I know you mentioned Austin when we were preparing for this are, are just the Venus retrograde and then the Mars Saturn conjunction finally wrapping up. And those are the two big signatures that we've been looking forward to both and identified both in the yearly forecast, but also in last month month's forecast because we we're kind of expecting uh, the Mars Saturn conjunction and the cessation of that to coincide uh, perhaps with some of the lessening of the restrictions that have been happening with the quarantine, or hopefully uh, we weren't sure if that was one of the main signatures with what was going on with the coronavirus and, and some of the things that were peaking in general. But it's interesting how things are lining up so far here at the end of April with some of that, at least in terms of the restrictions and Mars getting ready to depart from Aquarius in just a couple weeks now. Yeah, I think it's going to end up timing it really well. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I guess the, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead, Kelly. I, I guess the only question, the only question that we don't know that we're, I'm nervous about is if the, the releasing of the restrictions, which seems like a, you know, breath of fresh air in some ways. Um, some of the concerns are whether there'll be a second spike or or a second sort of peak of people getting infected with the coronavirus, and then what happens at that point. Um, I don't, I don't know if we can like call that, but it's just interesting that at least the Mars Saturn conjunction is lessening at that point, and then what comes next after that as we head into the summer. Yeah, well, and we know that what comes at the end of June, whatever it is, is not good. It might be economic, it might be uh, medical, it might be both. Um, but we do know that um, there are, there are a lot of very difficult configurations at the end of June and early July. Um, so right. as far as that, that's what's next. Um, but yeah. <laughs> that's what's after we, we, what we get to at the end of May. We move into the period of like the the interim between like the most tense parts of the year and the second, aside from this whole pileup of planets in Capricorn and the Mars-Saturn conjunction, which has been taking place over the past couple of months that we focused on in the yearly forecast, the other part of the year that we really focused on as being the most tense part of the year. I think, like you said, starts in June, July when Mars moves into Aries, and we get the ramping up to the Mars retrograde in Aries that is squared to the Capricorn planets. Yeah, yeah, that'll be fun. That's September, and um, yeah, we have, you know, we have I, time. I, I would say, I would say, with the ISR conference being originally scheduled uh, during that very yeah. difficult piece of astrology, that the just that timing to me as an astrologer, I'm like, yeah, probably not going to happen. Yeah, um, I was, hopefully, I was not gonna... hopefully everything's great and it does work out. That's not um it's not a wish, it is uh, a suspicion. Yeah, I was not gonna mention that because I know even before all of this last year, we had all agreed that that was not the finest piece of electional astrology, putting the opening of the conference like right on the day that Mars is stationing retrograde in Aries square, Saturn, Saturn. Pluto, and Jupiter, everything else. Um, but I don't know, let's hope for hope for the best and we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so, uh, but uh, so you know, doom, uh, doom properly placed at various points in the year. But I really like the second half of this month. I think the first part of the Venus retrograde, 
where Venus is square Neptune is going to be fun. It might be, it might not be, uh, there may be some positive expectations set, which are not met later. But as far as a take it day by day, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think people are going to go nuts in, uh, you know, like doing all of the social things and doing all of the, like going to the beach things and all that. Like it's very, you know, Venus and Neptune doesn't, I should say Neptune doesn't help Venus find true or lasting pleasures, but Neptune can help Venus find pleasures. Some positive like expectations a lot. met that are not met later. I love what a euphemism like you're <laughs> almost using here for Venus. You're being very gentle about this Venus stationing retrograde square Neptune. I'm like, who are you and what have you done with our Austin? <laughs> All right. I'm just I'm just trying to use structural language. Okay. Well, you don't yeah. have like a, a meat grinder like analogy for Venus square oh, Neptune. I don't I don't I mean I don't I know I don't think it's a meat grinder. No, oh, no, no, I think it's no, no, no. Similarly, a uh, poetic turn of phrase for this configuration. Oh. Um, it it might be uh, like being abducted by the Fae, where you're taken off yes. into a fantasy realm for a while, and then you know you uh, and it's really interesting. There are a lot of experiences that are kind of magical, and then you wake up in a cornfield and your wallet's missing. <laughs> your wallet, and hopefully that's, not your that's your liver. Because or I do your dignity. think. Oh, your dignity. There's going to be a lot of overindulgence in things, whether it's seeing people, shopping, spending money. Um, it just feels like some of the pretty shiny things that have been inaccessible for people that they, they're going to not have boundaries about that. Right. Right. Neptune is very anti-boundary. Yeah. So I'm going to have all the things because I had no things for two or three months. Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's it's. It, it was really interesting how, um, you know, March's events made what the Venus retrograde was going to be about so much more clear. It's like, yeah. oh, well, yeah, that that makes a lot. Of course, people, there's going to be um, excessive and um, yeah, uh, not 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 necessarily responsible relating and spending, right? Or not necessarily, let's say, not necessarily like farsighted. Right, there's some some short-term pleasure-based decisions, and I think that um, the North Node Rahu's uh, ingress into Gemini and sharing that space with with Venus is in and of itself um, a rather lustful and debaucherous influence. And then with the Neptune as well for the first part, you know, um, you're gonna have a lot of that. But I like that a lot better than this June's part of the Venus retrograde where Venus is tightly square Mars. Um, which is much more contentious and a lot less um, partying with the Fae. Yeah, I like that um, acknowledgement of the North Node coming into Gemini, Austin, that um, the nodes change signs on May 5th, North Node into Gemini, South Node into Sag. And that's really going to amplify that Venus hunger for whether mm -hmm. it's connection or pleasure or indulgence. And we have two Venus square Neptune aspects this month, one around May 3rd before Venus goes retrograde and a second later in the month around the 20th after Venus has gone retrograde. And Venus is really just squaring Neptune through that whole period. She doesn't move much by a degree there. Um, so there really is that feeling of 
like a hunger that, and you know, with Neptune, you can't be satisfied and you don't actually know what you really want. So you just take in, or you say yes to many things, hoping one of them will, will satisfy you or quell the craving, quench the thirst. But, um, it, it's hard to find that real sense of, oh, this was, this was really worth waiting for. Yeah, it's such an overly yeah. idealistic aspect, putting uh, Venus and Neptune together, especially in the hard aspects in um, over-idealizing over something, especially something that you haven't attained yet, and thinking that it's really great. And then once you have it, sometimes that feeling of disillusionment that sometimes sets in when the reality eventually sets in. And I'm not sure if we already see the reality this month, or if this a large part of this month in the second half with Venus stationing retrograde there so closely conjunct Neptune is still just the the honeymoon phase or the illusionment phase. Well, so I would let me speak on behalf of Venus Neptune. I I would say that if you expect to get if you expect to be able to keep a lot of the experiences uh, that 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 gives you, you're gonna. It's not gonna be good. But if you just like go into go into experiences to have experiences and don't expect to like be able to you know uh, to have a solid whatever at the end of it, it, it's fine. It can actually be fun. It's good for pleasure, um, but it's not good for lasting gain. And I, I think people should be careful setting expectations. Uh, around Venusian topics during that period, because it'll be very hard to see where things are going to end up. But if you don't marry yourself, well, if you don't marry yourself, <laughs> if you don't marry <laughs> marry yourself to, oh, well, we had this experience, or I'm going to go do this, and it has to be this at the end of the day. Uh, you know, if you expect it to be what it looks like, if you expect in two months to be able to look back at it and be like, yep, it's still there, and it's exactly what I thought. You'll, there's a, a much higher chance of disappointment, but if you're just doing stuff to do it to do stuff, that's um, that that's very good. Venus Neptune is fun. Also worth pointing out, it's Neptune here is in the sign of Venus's exaltation. So mm -hmm. what fantasies Neptune can produce uh, will be pleasing to the Venusian nature. That's mm -hmm. a beautiful point. So there's sort of these periods, I guess, of maybe being able to relax and let go or be at ease, even if it's not sustainable or long lasting, but certainly in the moment, having that release of, of perhaps tension. Um, yeah. And I imagine the stock market um, will probably in economic um, uh, pred uh, predictions will probably follow that. Like, Oh, everything's fine. Right. Everything's great. We've got all this money. Everything's going to be great. All the stocks will soar. All the, you know, it's going to be fine. And like, like those are predictions about the future based on a delusional moment or a potential, a, a moment with strong illusory potential, right? So th yeah. those kind of things will almost certainly be wrong. Um, but, uh, you know, if you just want to like go hang out and get drunk and whatever, not expect much to come out of it, except for that, then you'll probably be in good shape. Yeah. One of the things I thought of with that Venus-Neptune vibe throughout May was this uncertainty about exactly what you can and can't do and when. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, 
Belgium's not every country. Every country's doing this differently. But I'm hearing information from New Zealand and Australia as well. And there's sort of this staggered rollout to do with reopening. You know, we, we think we're going to have this happen on this date. And then a week or two later, these other things will happen. But we're not giving you all the detail. And we're reserving the right to change our mind right up until the last minute. So there's this, mm-hmm. this hopefulness of Venus-Neptune. Maybe we can get together. Maybe we can do this. But never really knowing until kind of the last moment whether it's actually going to happen or whether you're going to have that letdown or disappointment, which unfortunately is a side effect of Neptune because things aren't quite what we hope them to be. That's a great I think that's point, a really good Kelly. Point. So maybe one of our keywords for Venus retrograde here is like the restructuring of social norms as people like emerge from the Mars-Saturn conjunction and the quarantine, the question of what what does society look like at this point and what's appropriate socially or how do we structure society in a post like covid situation for the second half of the year yeah, yeah and how much was, do yeah, we wear masks and yeah and inhabiting else. that ambivalence right like i don't know i don't know what the fuck's happening to the world let's take these pills right <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think about too, just as another topic here is given my husband's role in the education industry, there's a lot of discussion now about, you know, because every country has different school years, you know, kids are in school at different times of the year. And one of the big topics are the kids going back to school under what circumstances, how will that be structured? Can we manage social distancing when we have a group of five-year-old or six-year-old kids in a classroom? So there's a lot of, and I think that's Venus sort of being in Gemini, you know, there's sort of a bit of a theme there, also being aware Mercury is going into Gemini this month. What does school look like? Um, what does education, what what are the young children, how, how are their lives going to be structured with this going forward as well? Sure. Yeah. They're, they're, really they've great. been pretty weird. Uh, I know I have a, a good friend of mine has a, um, a good-sized family, and I know Tribe that- kids. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's been a very Saturn, Mars, Pluto, like- so they're they're were you know they're doing school remotely, but the school was asking him to videotape his children doing the Pledge of Allegiance and send that to the teacher, because that that was required, which was utterly bizarre. So okay. that that that's some that's some pretty Saturn Pluto. That I don't I hope that that's not a national policy that that is an eccentricity of that particular school. Um, but uh, you know, we we're just catching up, and he's like, "Yeah, let me tell you about what's been going on with the kids' school. Um, I've been having to videotape them." Mm. One of the that's things the Saturn can- Mars Pluto, and we're moving away from that for a while, right? Right. One of the things, though, that's going to be—I feel like—is going to be connected with all of this, and it gets set up immediately with that Venus station is. So here, just looking at the animate chart for those watching the video version, starting in late April, we can see Mars starts out at 20 Aquarius and Venus starts out at 18 Gemini. And Venus is slowing down and getting ready to station retrograde and Mars is is headed towards the end of Aquarius. And then what happens is weird because it's almost simultaneous, but Venus um, slows down and it stations retrograde right there at 21 Gemini. But then pretty much within the same day, Mars switches signs and moves into Pisces, which we know, but I think why that's relevant is because of that that weird Neptune signature that's tied in with it. It means that the square with Venus and Neptune then is really heightened and is really activated at that point. So that Neptunian 
um, aspect of things and that social aspect of Venus, which is is really heightened at that point, um, starting in the middle of May. But then that means that it's also setting off the very beginning of and the buildup to um, that conjunction between Mars and Neptune, then which will eventually take place later. And the contrast between completely opposite or opposing significators hitting Neptune and and how that manifests, it might be like a Venus Neptune can sometimes be a bit more pleasant than like a Mars Neptune uh, conjunction, especially in, in different ways that it can manifest. But anyways, it starts at that point. Venus completes um, a, a second exact square with Neptune around May twentieth, which is actually right around the time of the new moon, which takes place on the twenty second. But then Mars makes its way towards Neptune and then eventually conjoins it, uh, and the moon actually catches up at the same time at twenty degrees of Pisces around June twelfth. So this is taking us a little far into the future as we starting to get into things in June. But I think that's going to be relevant in terms of whatever. Um, happens in the middle of May initiates a period where we're not going to see the full results of that until the middle of June. But it's almost like there's something. It's like there's something positive happening that's seemingly positive uh, in the middle of May, but then it has a seemingly sort of negative or downside that comes out by the middle of June. Yeah, I I, I see the same thing. I'm I'm timing it a little bit differently. I'm more concerned. With uh, Venus and Mars's exact square, because um, that really takes us from Venus apply Venus right in that square with Neptune, which mm-hmm. is a, a mellow, if potentially illusory vibe, to Venus square Mars while Venus is retrograde and with Mars in the superior position. You know that that puts a lot of um, uh, antisocial fire. Um, into uh, you know, uh, in into the whatever fun um, was happening. Right, Mar- Mars. It's Mars interesting that conflict. that square. It looks like that square happens like right halfway through the Venus retrograde when Venus conjoins the Sun at thirteen Gemini mm-hmm. on June third, and um, both of them are basically squaring Mars right around that point around June first, second, and third. Right, that's a good point. The Sun's doing that as well. So that's yeah, that's Marshall. There's um, some friction there. Some tension, yeah, that, yeah. That um, that, that the story will pivot there. Yeah, it looks like that's also the full moon, or very close to the full moon of June fifth, which the moon is a, in, which, an eclipse. It's like possibly it's one borderline. Of those, it's, it's like on the borderline. Yeah, one of those. That's one of those. Like I guess it's an eclipse. Yeah, um, but it's you know pales in comparison to the one that comes two weeks later. Yes, that's true. That's <laughs> that's the one to watch. Um, so for May, then there's a sense of like hope that maybe you can enjoy a few things, but enjoy them because they're not going to be around forever kind of thing. This may not be a permanent state of pleasantness, but enjoy the passing phase where and when you can. Is this to summarize? I guess like, I don't want to be too much of a downer, but like Venus Neptune sometimes is the most extreme manifestation is, is false hope. And I feel like that's one of the keywords we're like dancing around here. Is obviously that's not going to be the same for everybody, but the illusory nature of Neptune is such that um, the optimism of Venus sometimes is mis, not misconstrued, but misapplied um, sometimes in very extreme ways, and that's not always the case. And certainly there'll be like more moderate or like light manifestations of that that are even positive or good, but. Um, 
Well, one thing to add in that I've been mulling over is the changing sort of quality to Venus in Gemini based on what Mercury's doing. Um, yeah, he I was just going to mention that. Thank you. Yeah, he's moving a fair bit. You know, we're going to have the first part of May with Venus in Gemini, Mercury in Taurus. Then we get a couple of weeks in the middle to the second part of the month where Mercury's in Gemini too. And then at the end of the month, Mercury goes into Cancer, which is its own, you know, the start of its own retro cycle, which is something different altogether. But I do wonder about something enjoyable. You know, I think I think about technically the theory says that Mercury in Gemini is going to help Venus in Gemini out in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I also I mean, think that it's going to it's another it's another factor that points to a burst of manic activity. Hugely. I you mean, know. and May 11 is the start of many reopening things um, mm-hmm. in, in the countries that are managing or ready to take those steps. The, the frantic thing, I think, is going to be really key. There's so much information. Can we do this? Can we can't do that? It's going to be very mental buzz. Right. Speaking and a lot of, though, of commerce as well. Yes. Speaking, though, of um, Mercury, that was one of the things I noticed when I was looking at the lunations this month, which is that there's a new moon that takes place at two degrees of Gemini around the 22nd. Um, but what's weird is that's also around the time when Mercury which is moving direct through Gemini and is moving very quickly, (laughs) catches up with and conjoins Venus, and it does so at 20 degrees of Gemini. Square Neptune. Square Neptune. So it means that um, once those two significators and once the domicile lord of Venus in Gemini actually catches up with it, it happens to do so at that same problematic and illusory degree, which happens to be exactly square Neptune, which just makes me nervous because it kind of brings me back to that last Mercury retrograde we had in Pisces, where so much of it seemed like it ended up having to do with either false information or like misinformation going around or being put out about um, the pandemic that was like just growing at that point and was getting serious. And that was the point where more active measures could have been taken in some of the Western countries to deal with it. But instead, we were dealing with it being downplayed or saying it's not going to be a big deal or what have you until eventually Mercury station direct and some of that false information sort of went away like um, mist that suddenly dissipated and then suddenly the reality of the situation was was right in front of everybody and everybody had to start dealing with it at that point. Mm-hmm. Well, and the and statistical models that were happening at the beginning of March like some some things have been massively revised upwards some have been massively revised downwards like when we look at what the like what the statistic how the statistics were being interpreted by leading medical institutions vastly different um by the beginning of by the middle of april um relative to the beginning of march like the the that whole like mercury neptune like everything looks different um, both the mainstream sure. as well as the what everything else, but um, sure. So I, although, let me just even let me, let me that, give some up. of the um, things with the projections in terms of one of, my, one of the things I want to say is just that, like in the U.S., fifty-five thousand people have still died, and that was with the entire country being closed up and grinding to a halt, and the entire economy almost like stopping. So that was like best case scenario with all of that still happening when it did, we still lost like 55,000 people. And so some of the higher 
projections, obviously not the highest projections, but some of the I just imagine if the economy hadn't stopped or if those orders hadn't been put in place, we would be talking about like hundreds of thousands of death deaths just over the course of a month. I mean, that's the craziest part is of those 55,000, we're talking about all most of that taking place in the span of like four weeks' time, which is just insane to think about. The numbers yeah, are huge yeah. and the numbers aren't accurate yet. Yeah. I mean, if anything, the numbers so just, are probably underreported to the extent that people, the testing isn't as widely available as it could be or should be. Right. Yeah. So back, back to May, though, if, if you guys don't mind. Mercury and Gemini. Um, so I, I, this is a better position for Mercury to tangle with Neptune from, right? Mercury was tangling with Neptune um, in February and March from its uh, from from the position of its own fallen detriment, right? So it yeah. was already in a place where it had minimal ability to sort things out, and then and it was also sharing that space with Neptune, which is absolutely Mercury kryptonite. Now we do have an entanglement between Mercury and Neptune again here at the end of May. But it's um, it the the two are not in the same sign, which helps a little bit. And Mercury is in a very fit position, right? Mercury's in a position where it's very strong. And so, you know, if we're if we're talking about, you know, to a certain degree, Mercury is always trying to solve Neptune, right? Um, and Neptune is <laughs> is trying to dissolve uh, Mercury. And so the last tangle they had, uh, net Mercury was super outgunned. In this, um, in this next entanglement, Mercury is much better armed, and so I think if we're if we're looking at it in terms of like trying to solve or make sense of a giant amorphous powerful thing, um, Mercury is going to do is in position to do a much better job this time than last time. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm I mean glad you mentioned that. Austin, because I, I do agree that Mercury is dealing with Neptune, but it's a very different kind of Mercury. It's like a qualitatively different creature this time around. And I, for me, I'm sort of thinking maybe plus or minus three degrees as Mercury comes into the square with Neptune and then moves to separate. So Mercury moving through about 17 to approximately 23 of Gemini. Um, yeah, there may be some cloudiness and foggy facts then for sure. But I guess I remain hopeful that the period prior to that, certainly where Mercury is moving through Gemini in a more kind of just doing his, like this is the first time we have Mercury in dignity since this whole palaver started. And mm. Austin, you mentioned commerce briefly before. I'm really interested to see what happens with business and trade when Mercury gets into Gemini. Um, it's, you know, in addition to talking about Mars leaving the Saturn co-presence, Saturn rulership, seeing Mercury, the traditional planet of negotiation and deal-making and, and business interaction, seeing him come into one of his home signs does make me really get curious about what's going to happen um, in terms of businesses coming back online, businesses now having tweaked or moved in ways that they need to. So I guess I'm seeing a little bit of productivity with the, with the Mercury and Gemini piece. Well, and just as like on a personal level, not necessarily like speculating about what the entire world is going to do, it's going to be, you know, it's good Mercury, um, good, you know, good Mercury there with the sun and Venus. Venus is kind of ambivalent as to whether it's helpful. Um, but like, that's a, that's a burst of, ener of energy, you know, if like, 
Like I'm probably going to try to get some writing done and get way more writing done than I normally do. Right. Yeah. I have a couple of big writing projects and basically that May 11th when Mercury goes into Gemini is like back at the desk. Right. I guess I just hope, uh, thinking back to like Alan White, I think about configurations like this where Neptune's the one in the superior position instead of Mercury. And sometimes just that question of Alan would always phrase it as like, who's on top and who's topping who, so to speak. Who's dominating who. I, I, right. I remember it being phrased differently. How, how do you remember? <laughs> I'm not, my, my memory is not very good right now or not as good. How do you You're recall, fulfilling Alan? a Scorpio cliche there, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> with your bedroom metaphor. It's not my metaphor. Well, th- it's, it's Alan's, and he yeah, used the exactly. F word. Um, but that just being as opposed to if, let's say, if Mercury was in the opposite sign of Sagittarius, where it obviously doesn't have dignity, but it would be in the superior position overcoming Neptune, and just sometimes that difference of is, it, is Mercury winning out? Is the, the message winning out, or is the illusion sort of winning, winning out? out. Yeah, that's the question. Yeah. So it's interesting and funny that we're we're basically just jumping to all of like the most important stuff, but we've kind of jettisoned any chronological approach to we this missed, month. We have, and we missed something. I don't know if you guys want to just speak briefly about the full moon earlier in the month in Scorpio. I know it's not a main event, but it is the full moon this month. Yeah. Well, I was wondering if we could just back up and like quickly just go through chronologically so we don't miss anything. Oh, you, yeah. You, sure. Go for it. Okay, so let's just back up to and quickly go through starting May 1st. One of the things I thought was interesting right away at the beginning of the month is the month actually starts with a Mercury Uranus conjunction, like right at the top of the mm-hmm. month, uh, with Uranus being at six degrees of Taurus and Mercury being at uh, seven ish degrees of Taurus, just coming off of that late six degree conjunction with, with Uranus. Um, what do you think of, of that, Kelly? I think there will be an, um, a new explosion in baking at that time. Okay. Um, which very is ba- baking focused. Very, I think, it, yeah, you know, get all your good cake recipes here. No, I think there's something very much about Mercury and Taurus having to do with making things by hand or making things, you know, whether it's cooking or gardening or carpentry or what have you. And Mercury Uranus, I think the the word Austin was using before was the experimenting. So it's almost like people are maybe more willing to engage with different food or different self-care things uh, based on this. Um, the other thing that I'm kind of curious about that, since Venus went into Gemini, within 24 hours of that happening, I had three or four conversations with different people about beauty and skincare products and devices and things. And I'm just interested about how Mercury being the ruler of, of Venus and Gemini coming to Uranus, you know, maybe people are doing different things uh, there, which I know is maybe a very specific manifestation. But I, and then the symbolism we often talk about with Mercury Uranus is. Uranus has got the megaphone. So it is a little bit more about that innovation. And I think for us as individuals, on that very, it's sort of April 30th, May 1st, think about the kinds of things that you're thinking about, who you're talking to, what the topic of conversations are, because it will help you get a sense of what the longer Uranus and Taurus trend um, has to do with for you personally. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and also maybe like an acceleration of some of the things that we're seeing when the sun went into Taurus and has started conjoining Uranus of that sort of push or urge for like freedom or the loosening of restrictions and Mercury coming in and sort of heightening some of the message surrounding that um, in some way right. when it completes that conjunction with Uranus. Yeah. There's a beautiful mm. quote from Brené Brown in her book Rising Strong um, where she says, we're born makers. We move what we're learning from our heads to our hearts through our hands. And this to me somehow expresses the essence of Mercury and Taurus around how getting your hands physically into things can help you connect to whatever you're doing, but also be more grounded in the moment in ways that other things can't. I think that's uh, really guys, beautiful, Kelly. You, you guys know that there's a funny manifestation. I didn't check this out because it happened when I was sick, not paying attention to the news, but a listener, and I can't remember their name, sent me this afterwards saying that it was around the time of the Mars Uranus square, which we had mentioned in the last forecast, that like some of the crazy conspiracy theories about 5G towers peaked and some people in like Europe and stuff were like setting the towers on fire. And that was yes. around, and that some of those stories came out around the time of the Mars Uranus square, which is a really interesting, funny, not funny, but actually kind of dumb, but interesting manifestation of that transit. Well, and that's just on a very simple structural level, like Mars square Uranus, like attacking technology. Right. Yeah. Like so I, yeah. I attack your, your device. Setting ablaze cell phone towers. But oh Chris, God, I'm really envious of you. <laughs> I'm really envious of you having been tuned out over the last month, month and a half from social media. Um, it's been terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I got glimpses of it, but I actually feel bad because that I didn't have the same um, quarantine experience as everybody. Like everybody else was like playing Animal Crossing, and I, uh, I did no. get no. Well, you were I baking not... and like exploring. I saw you. And I mean, Peter, you, like, you were. We did go walking. You were in like yes. literal okay. quarantine. I would. I would say yeah, you actually had the Chris. preeminent <laughs> quarantine experience of being yes. being ill and being afraid of infecting people. That's kind of the. The archetype, um, which the rest of us only merely resembled. Yeah, yes. and my poor partner um, living on the other half of the apartment, trying to stay away from me for a month and a half, trying not to get sick as well. Um, I did like get a Nintendo and like killed some time at one point playing Zelda and stuff, but it was not. Uh, yeah, I didn't have the same experience. So I kind of envy some of the people that will always remember the past several weeks as this yes. very weird time, but. Where everybody was like jumping on Zoom calls and like having lots of internet interactions and things like that, it looked like a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I had um, I, I had a, a a very mixed feeling. So I feel primarily very grateful and fortunate that the source of my livelihood was not disrupted. At the mm -hmm. same time, I did have occasional feelings of jealousy um for people who just weren't going to go to work for two weeks when i heard about what they were doing and i wouldn't trade places at all um but simply um how should we say simply being grateful um and knowing what is ultimately best and true did not stop my feelings of jealousy someone was like yeah my company's going to be fine but i don't have to go in for three weeks i was like oh, oh motherfucker <laughs> yeah sure. um yeah it's just but been weird and surreal that's for sure. Absolutely. Sure. Uh, but yeah, but that's why I've gotten back to sudden explosion of podcasts because I wanted to be putting out material during this time, but my 
body just wasn't there yet. So now that it's starting to get there, I'm getting back to rolling out the podcast again. All right, so let's get back to our attempt. Let's make attempt number two to go through we the month. We were at the start of the month. We got one thing done on the chronological. Okay, so we talked about Mercury conjunct Neptune, which we open up the month of May with. Let me just get the chart back there for the video version, and then Mercury conjunct Uranus. Yeah, Mercury conjunct Uranus. Um, yeah. Then it looks like Sun Mercury conjunction on May fourth yes. is our next big thing. So we're halfway through the Mercury cycle before we hit another Mercury retrograde sta- station, which thankfully is not uh, for another forty-four days. It looks like. Uh, shortly after that, as Kelly originally pointed out, I think in our notes, the nodes change signs and the north node shifts from Cancer into Gemini. The south node moves from Capricorn into Sagittarius, which, as we noted earlier, is going to primarily and most importantly set us up for shifting the eclipses out of the Cancer and Capricorn axis. And soon we're going to start getting eclipses for a couple of years in the Gemini Sagittarius axis. So make note, and it's, this is kind of then an interesting precursor, the Venus retrograde this year acts as an interesting precursor in highlighting the Gemini part of our chart, whatever house that falls in, and the nodes switching into that sign at the same time. It's almost like setting something up um, or announcing that shift that's going to become more important over the next couple of years when those eclipses start taking place in those signs as well. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, after that, we get our first lunation of the month, which looks like it's a full moon uh, in Scorpio, right? It is. So it looks like this is happening at 17 degrees of Scorpio. And so, yeah, 17 degrees of Scorpio, it's a little, looks like it applies to the next planet after that that the moon applies to is what, in opposition with Mercury at 20 Taurus? And then a square to Mars, yeah, Mercury first. Yeah, I'm glad Mercury's there to provide a little bit of a boundary because otherwise the moon's like in a Scorpio, uh, Mars ruled sign, and then applying to a square with Mars. And I think we could do with some lunations that don't have that that tension for a little while. That'd be nice. Uh, all right. Anything else about that full moon? Anything you guys want to mention? A lot of people wrote in and liked our the anecdote last month about and and sort of confirmed like hospitals or bars or other places. Um, often having a, like a frenetic energy or a peak in activity, just anecdotally around the time of full moons, and I thought that was interesting hearing different people write in about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the the basic symbolism could be um, a lot more deep or intense emotions. That weirdness between the illumination um, bringing to light quality of the moon in a place that deals with things that can be very private or kept close to the chest. And I did see that kind of square to Mars. I'm like, oh, it's not the first aspect, but it's certainly, you know, it's not a 15 or 20 degree orb aspect. The moon's going to get to Mars in relatively, you know, quick succession. So it does feel a bit like uh, deeper emotions surfacing in a way where there is some tension or discord or there is some disagreement. There's a little bit of emotional discomfort here where it's intense and it's it's a release point um you know given that many people have maybe been holding on to a lot of stuff or just coping in situations that are more pressured than usual just feels like a lot coming up and a lot that needs to uh, either be processed or released sure yeah and there's uh i mean that moon's configured to a lot of planets right we have um 
uh, uh, we have a sine base square to Mars. We've got a sine base sextile to Jupiter. We've got an opposition to Mercury. We've got a trine to Neptune. Um, so there are a lot of different, you know, uh, competing features here. Um, it's not, it, 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 it is not, um, how should we say it is not clearly focused on one thing. I think you're probably right, Kelly. It's a, it's a lot of like feelings coming up about a lot of things because a lot of things have happened and yeah. all those have implications for a, a, a future, which is, um, you know, more difficult to see than it was three months ago for most people. Yeah. I guess like usual, we have to tie this full moon into the new moon that preceded it, which, which was that new moon conjunct Uranus and some of the feelings of wanting to loosen restrictions or seek liberation or approach things in a new and unique uh, or revolutionary way. Um, some of those initial impulses to, in moving towards that probably mm -hmm. first fully come to light in people's lives at this time two weeks later once we hit the full moon in Scorpio opposite to that. That's a good point. I bet that some of this is on a collective level is going to be like people kind of getting ready to leave quarantine like the next week or whatever, like the, making that trend, the, this lunation spotlighting that transition, especially on an emotional level. Like, okay, so I'm not just staying in my house and playing Animal Crossing or worrying about my financial future or any of the hundred things people have been doing. Like, I'm going to go back out into the world again, and I have a lot of feelings about that. Right. Yeah. And some yeah. of the inc increased communication, we see the first opposition with Mercury, uh, then the trine with Neptune, uh, but then eventually also the square with Mars, followed by a sextile with Jupiter. So just Speaking to your point, Austin, about there being so many aspects and so many things that the moon then encounters once it moves into that new phase. Yeah, there's just, there's just a lot right that that can that bears upon that moon, and that moon will make all those aspects that you just listed, Chris, within a 24 hour period. So it does make it mm -hmm. a level of busyness. Um, well, mm -hmm. On the anecdotal um, increase in um, activity from the full moon we talked about last month. As an astrologer, I have also noticed that there is a higher um, demand or request for people wanting consults um, around the time of the full moon as well. So um, mm. something about this full moon being in Scorpio just feels like people might want to go a little bit deeper with their own personal reflection or personal healing experiences as well. Okay. Um, all right. So that brings us to then, I believe, the next major thing we need to mention is that basically takes us into that second week where all of the most important stuff happens or starts happening. And uh, the first thing that happens is on the 10th. Uh, well, there's two things that happen simultaneously, but the big one is that Saturn slows down and stations mm -hmm. retrograde at one degree and 57 minutes of Aquarius. So this is the very first station of Saturn in Aquarius since it moved into that sign uh, very recently, what, just like a, a month or so ago. And um, so we get the first, let's say, one of the keywords for a, a station, especially an outer planet station, is an intensification of the energies of that planet. Um, so I think this is interesting because, on the one hand, I don't know, I talked a little bit about this, and it's it's interesting last month thinking about how this whole thing that's happening right now is either the book end of the later phases of the Saturn return 
of those with Saturn and Capricorn, and this is what's like capping off their transition into adulthood, or this is just the beginning phases of the Saturn return for those with Saturn and Aquarius, and the very initial uh, sort of shot or, or or sort of chapter of that journey for them over the course of the next two to three years. Um, but here we get a really important turning point within that uh, for just about not just the Saturn return people, but also with Saturn just having moved into a new sign and potentially a new whole sign house for everybody. Yeah, um, I think it is. It's absolutely the Saturn. Uh, Saturn uh, sort of dipping its toe into Aquarius um, has been very much been a preview period for everybody about what Saturn and Aquarius is going to be like. Most impactful, generally, for those who have Saturn and Aquarius. Um, mm -hmm. For uh, when I think back to my Saturn return, mine mine had the same staggered ending. I'm Saturn and Virgo. And so Saturn moved into Libra for like six months and mm -hmm. then came back into Virgo. And to me, it felt like my Saturn return was over. There was reprieve. And then as soon as Saturn got back into the natal sign, so in this case, it would be Saturn moving back into Capricorn, it was like, and one more round, right? Like, no, you're not done yet. Um, but uh, right. <laughs> it was actually, it, it felt like it was over when it had moved into the next sign. Um, and so the contrary yeah, will be true. That's a good true. point. So you're not done yet for Go the ahead. Saturn and Capricorn people is the is part of the message. And this is where Saturn turns and starts heading back towards that to make sure whatever the point was that you got it over the next six months uh, in basically the second half of 2020. Yeah, yeah. Kelly, did you have that experience with your return? Um, I was just trying to make me sound old. I'm like, that was what, 2010 that Saturn came? No, not, not that late. It was. Um, hang on. It was. It was 2009. Was it 2010? It was the fall of 2009 when Saturn ingressed into Libra, and then it came back into, yeah, then it came back that into early Virgo part for a little of 2010. bit in, in 2010. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I had recently moved to Canada, which I did as part of my Saturn return, just for shits and giggles. And so there was vacation. a lot- <laughs> Just for, for you know, blowing your life up <laughs> for sightseeing. Yeah, I, w I wasn't sure. Um, I wanted to really understand the meaning of the word cold. So right. I went to the coldest country in the world. Um, yeah, that so is a it's great a Saturn, Saturn manifestation. Honestly, and, you know, based on being with my husband, I've lived in places with really extreme climate and I'm, you know, you don't read that in the books about Saturn relationship stuff. But anyway, um, so I don't have a lot of specifics there. I apologize, Austin. That's a very long-winded way of getting to your question. Um, yeah, no worries. It's just a, curious. It's one of the things that makes 2020 just that year of like straddling things is, you know, Saturn is just dipping his toes into Aquarius for a bit, but he's not done with Capricorn yet. The image that I've been describing of like this Saturn going into Aquarius is like you open a door to a room and you think you're ready to go into the room or the space and then you realize there's a fair bit of shit you're going to have to organize in there. And Saturn going retrograde is sort of the proverbial just taking that step back. I know what this is, but I, you know, it's not the time to go fully into this space yet. Yeah, there, there's something I forgot in the other room that I need to go back and get. Okay. Yeah. No, that's oh, no. That's a metaphor. Literally, <laughs> you did that so well, Chris. 
No, but that, I'm saying metaphorically. That's exactly meta- the metaphor. That's exactly. Sorry, your deadpan dryness got me there. Okay. Um, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like, oh, I thought I was ready, but yeah, there's something. Oh my god, completely. That's well, it. So, so everybody could think the- about what house, uh, especially what whole sign house Capricorn represents, and think about Saturn forgetting something and needing to go back into that other room to grab it before it can fully move back into Aquarius permanently for the next what, two and a half, three years. Yeah, but Saturn's not going back to grab something. He's like, there's a wall that I need to re- to move or something. <laughs> right. I, I, I tend to think of it as um, like some sort of building inspector. Um, like Saturn left Capricorn. Like Cap- uh, Capricorn has had a rather thorough inspection. And Saturn's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. And then three months later, I'm going to be back to see if you made the renovations necessary to bring this up to code. To code. Um, where I like it. it yeah. And, you know, there will be fines if it is not up to code. There will be consequences if you have not put the effort in. Sure. Well, yeah. 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 Um, Well, at least here with the Saturn station, I think we can also say if this is an intensification of Saturn, if it's the very first station in Aquarius, if you didn't already start to see some of the themes that are going to be happening in your life with Saturn's ingress, with it first moving into Aquarius at the end of March, then this station and the events surrounding it may give you um, a much clearer preview of what Saturn and Aquarius is going to be about for the next two and a half to three years, um, just due to that intensifying effect that can sometimes come with stations. And one little aspect that I think is just going to help with clarification around this Saturn in Aquarius is that the very next day, Mercury and Gemini will make a trine to Saturn in Aquarius. And it's not like a, a life-changing aspect. It's just a quick little trine from Mercury, but it's almost like we're going to get you're going to get some information, a piece of insight, or maybe just this sense of internal clarification about that Saturn in Aquarius. Mm. Look, it looks like the Moon catches yeah, up to Saturn and conjoins at the same time. Yeah, it's just that's a, a nice really little nice point ping. of clarification. That's yeah, that's beautiful. Wow. You just you yeah. just get something that helps you go, ah, that's what that's gonna be about. That's cool. All right. Um so Saturn and then retrogrades. Then we of course get to the, the more intense sort of phase of everything where by the thirteenth, um, Venus stations retrograde at twenty one Gemini, as we already discussed extensively. Mars simultaneously moves from Aquarius into Pisces, so it completes its what has it been like two months by that point trip through uh, aquarius oh six weeks in aquarius yeah six weeks okay 12 weeks was... with saturn okay yeah mm-hmm. 12 right because we had that accidental extended co-presence or sign-based conjunction because they saturn happened to switch signs and move from capricorn into aquarius right around the same time that mars did so we ended up with like a huge extended period of mars saturn in the same sign which finally yes. comes to an end at this point, and this is the final end of the Mars-Saturn conjunction, and some of the lessen- lessening of the restrictions or the restricted actions as a very simple keyword for Mars-Saturn that might be indicated by that, cur- curtailed actions. Yeah, frustrated mm-hmm. or thw- frustration and thwarted will. Mm. And then simultaneously, weirdly, right around the same time, we get the other aspect, which I mentioned at the very top of this episode or sometime earlier, which is Jupiter stations retrograde at 27 degrees of Capricorn, 
uh, also around May 13th, mm. May 14th, and it is uh, closely conjunct Pluto, which is at 24 degrees of Capricorn. So one of the things we, I mentioned in terms of that earlier, um, Austin, we mentioned the um, major shifting of like huge amounts of money that is taking place mm -hmm. at this time in the world in general in things massively either going down or massively going up. And one of the things that was interesting that I noticed when I was just happy to be preparing for this episode is I did for some reason, I don't know why, I guess I've used him as a chart example before. I think I used him as a chart example in my book because we have a time chart, but I actually have, we have the birth chart of Bill Gates, and it's interesting that he has Cancer rising and a Jupiter-Pluto conjunction in Leo in the second whole sign house in the place of, of finances and wealth, and at various points is or was the, the, one of the richest people in the world. Um, so it's interesting to see that sort of aspect in the chart of like a mega billionaire and seeing mm -hmm. a similar sort of signature going on. I think that might give us some idea of the signature that's going on right now. Yeah. I mean, Jupiter Pluto is, um, it won't make you super rich by itself, but, mm -hmm. um, a lot of the richest people in the world have that, uh, Warren Buffett has it in cancer. Um, mm -hmm. Carlos Slim has it in Virgo. Um, it's a, it's a, it does other things, but one of the things it does is big money. Yeah. Um, and it's it is really interesting to see huge moves money wise right now. I mean, like the what was the 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 initial bailout package like two trillion dollars? Like that is a very large sum to move all at once, right? And that was just the first bailout package in the U.S. And they're already in the process of talking about or negotiating like a second one. Yeah. So here's here's the chart yeah. of Warren Buffett since you just mentioned it. So August thirtieth, nineteen thirty. Um, Do we have I a birth know, time for him? I don't know. It says 3 p.m. Let me check okay. the source. Uh, oh, and his, I mean, if that time's correct, that Jupiter Pluto is in the eighth house. Wow. Yeah, I don't, I can't tell. This sounds like somebody claims to have gotten it from a friend, a friend of his from Buffett himself, but they're anonymous. So who knows if it's accurate or not. But we do at least know that he does have a Jupiter Pluto conjunction, which yeah. is very similar to Gates. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're talking about the bailouts there. Um, Virgin, you know, the airline company, they have a Virgin Australia iteration, and they're asking from the Australian government for a $1.4 billion bailout to keep their company kind of up and running. So I know that the government is is offer like governments around the world are offering support and relief uh, offerings to their citizens. But there's also the businesses that are, you know, either, either have gone from extremely lucrative high cash turnover businesses to nothing. And then also they're, you know, some of them are, are looking for some support too. Right. And you mentioned last month, Kelly, and I kind of, I didn't, I wasn't trying to dismiss it, but you made a point about Jupiter uh, in Capricorn and Jupiter not doing so well lately and how hard the travel industry and, and um, the airline industry is being hit by all of this, which is actually in retrospect, actually a really good point. And I always meant to say that because I didn't, I was, I think I said something at the time, like everything's like, you know, falling apart or not doing a good, not doing well right now. Um, yeah. But you're right that that area of the travel industry, which we might associate or, or the, the airline industry in particular, that's not doing so well that we might especially associate with Jupiter is in particular not in good shape. 
Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, there was a lot to talk about last month and I know we all have a lot of ideas. We don't always get to flesh out every single one of them. Um, but well, yeah, and the, when we do, we end up episodes like this when we're like which are gonna be half, th- half out, three two hours, hours and eight long. Yeah. And we're only halfway um, through the month. Yeah. The, the Just quickly on the Jupiter piece, I guess I, I was thinking a lot about the various ways Jupiter like got slammed in terms of its aspect configurations and right. the two industries that I could see, and m- maybe it's a little bit of personal bias, um, but I could see so much unraveling in the travel industry and in the education industries. If you think mm. about what's happened to school education, I know university level education has had an impact um, as well. So you could certainly factor that in, but those two industries are classically Jupiter and they've just, they've had the ground pulled out from underneath them. Um, the way teachers are having to try and teach a group of five-year-olds on the internet. I mean, these things are not sustainable. They're definitely temporary. Um, it's, it's, it's just, it's phenomenal how much has changed. And, you know, we've just had some photographs come out of Australia today where, you know, airlines have grounded their whole fleets. This is billions and billions of, of lost revenue. And the planes, I mean, the planes themselves are hugely expensive. There's just a hundred of them parked on a runway. And it's just phenomenal to me how different that is yeah. compared to well, these things. They don't own those planes, right? Those planes oh, well, are that's all- That's true. Like they've got leases the, you know, and payment plans. They, exactly. You know, they're $80 million loans each. And so, right, um, and, and the questions of like, how do you do social distancing in a plane where everybody's like crammed in a two a small tube that's like airtight and like flying right. for hours? You you can't really effectively social distance with, like that. Yeah, with, with gr- recycled gross air. recycled air. Uh, right. I would add to that. So one um, in doing the Vedic program with Freedom Coal the last couple of years. Um, one of the one of the significations for Jupiter that I hadn't encountered before that I thought was really interesting was that Jupiter was relevant whenever you were going to get a bunch of people together for a big event. The Jupiter was uh, Ju- mm. Jupiter would tell you about the space necessary to hold a bunch of people and also the uh, the cohesive spirit necessary to get a whole bunch of people to do one thing. And um, seeing Jupiter just get smashed uh, this year, um, I saw that very literally like, oh, well, you can't, you just can't, can't get a bunch of people together. So I just wanted to add that because I thought that was very simple. But That's very a dead brilliant on. point, Austin. And this is one of the things that makes me very dubious about any type of large gathering thing happening over the next few months is that. When right. you when you look at some of the virologists and the medical personnel, you know, while um, governments are willing to allow people to go back to work, there's a level of safety and control. One of the last things that I think is going to come back is large group gatherings. And I agree. I, I think if the astrologer in me is like, well, that has to wait till Jupiter goes into Aquarius, unfortunately. And, and yes, even and then, that, it's it's under pressure. Still, yes. Go ahead, Chris. That brings up a point I was just going to make, which is something I noticed in preparation for this episode, which is one of the other things that's it's easy to overlook, but it's actually really notable um, when Jupiter stations when Jupiter stations retrograde at this point at twenty seven degrees of Capricorn, it gets the closest that it's going to get to the conjunction with Saturn at this mm. point in time. But by stationing, it actually, doesn't reach or sort of aborts the conjunction basically 
And so it's almost like there's something that almost happens in the um, aligning of the two biggest planets in our solar system in May that it gets very close to happening, but they're just a few degrees away. What they're they're four or five degrees away, and then they retrograde apart, and the the distance between them gradually increases over the course of the next several weeks or the next few months. But then eventually in December they will come together and form that conjunction in early Aquarius. So it's almost like there's something that almost happens, like a re joining or removing together of, not removing, a reuniting uh, that almost comes back together this month, but then it doesn't, and it takes another six months before we fully see that manifest. That's a really good point. It's as close as we get to the Great Conjunction before it actually happens. Yeah, but maybe it has to do with something like that, like the um, inability, even the desire, but then suddenly the realization of the restrictions lessening, perhaps as a result of the Mars Saturn conjunction finally leaving, but then the realization that life isn't fully back to normal, that we're not just all going to be able to like crowd into North. sports or arenas or something like that again. But instead, um, there's still this period of awkwardness of getting used to whatever the new reality is for the next six months. Um, but I don't know, eventually, Jupiter does catch up with Saturn in December, and perhaps. I know with some of the projections, they were saying it would take at least a year to come up with like a, a vaccine for COVID. So perhaps the conjunction has to do perhaps with finally coming up with something that could help to um, make it so people could do things like that again, like um, getting in large groups. Yeah. Well, the you know one um, simple but useful way um, that I think about the Jupiter Saturn conjunction that every twenty years. Is that they remake the world together, um, and the, you know their conjunction sets a tone for twenty or two hundred years, and so like th them getting as close as they can or as close as they're going to before they do the actual conjunction in December, it's like this is part of what the new world is going to look like, but you're not actually going to see what it looks like until we get to the conjunction in December. And then I, I had one anecdote that I wanted to share that's uh, thoroughly astrological. Uh, about this, about the like getting together for sports. So as you all know, um, I'm a big fan of uh, mixed martial arts. And mixed martial arts is in a different category than most sports because it's not a team sport, right? You just need two people in a cage to fight. Yeah. And so they've been, uh, and the president of, um, uh, what is it? Uh, the president of the UFC, which is the biggest organization, um, is a rather cantankerous fellow named uh, Dana White. And Dana's been like, fuck it. He's like, we're going to get, he's like, I got a secret island. We're going to have fights with no crowds on fight island. And somebody pointed out to me that that was the most Saturn Mars uh, conjoined in Aquarius thing ever. And we've got a, we've got a crazy secret island where there will be fights and he wouldn't reveal its location. He'd be like, I can't Smart. tell you where it is. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's uh it's an and they're they're actually um they're going to be the first big sports thing to happen. There's a huge card on May 9th, and they're going to do it without a crowd. And they're just they're going to they've got a huge testing protocol. Um, but it's going to be fights with no audience, which is kind of eerie so, and it's it's yeah. it's appropriately plague creepy. Um, but to be fair, a lot of fans, including myself, are kind of excited that there'll be no crowd noise. There'll just be like the silence of two people locked in combat. 
and the occasional yeah you know, i mean it won't be completely and, and, silent oops, though will it it will be the sounds of no, pounding <laughs> well <laughs> i mean punches <laughs> i wasn't even going there kelly it will be the the, the sounds <laughs> of atten- of uh, attempted violence attempted right. violence this is a family um, show you two just to remind you Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, take take it to Fight Island. Get out of here with that. Take it to Fight Island. Yeah. I love it. All right. what, what we're sort of alluding to and jumping around with here is that the Mars Saturn stuff is a shorter piece of a longer Jupiter Saturn thing, basically, mm-hmm. and that we get potentially we get some of our freedoms, if you like, um, back in the in this month of May, essentially. But Jupiter and Saturn are still doing their thing. So some of the larger, like, I don't think international borders are opening up anytime soon. So there are pieces that are not opened up yet, but there are some smaller levels that come back. Like, Austin, you can go back to watching people kick the shit out of each other, for instance, just exactly. in a different environment. That, that's a great point, though. That's the other Jupiter side of this, just to continue expanding your whole point about Jupiter not being in great shape this year, Kelly, which you mentioned travel and education. And then finally, the very last other major and always traditional Jupiter theme is just like international relations and relations between foreign countries, not just travel to foreign country, but also just international relations in general and the tensions Trade. and c- closing off that that's occurred as, as a result of all of this. So therefore, the sort of separation that's occurred. Yeah, and it's very separate. Like countries that normally, like Australia and New Zealand, have an open border situation in the same way that Canada and America. Like, if you're a Canadian coming into America, is very different from any other person from any other country coming into the U.S. So there are, you know, country agreements that where there's normally very free flowing movement of citizens, and they've all shut them. I mean, the U.S. Canada border um, has been effectively closed. I think coming on six weeks or something now, which it's the longest land border in the world, and to have that kind of shut these things are significant right yeah Yeah, definitely um all right so let's get out of finally that (laughs) second week of may and let's get into the the third and fourth and final weeks and start to get towards the end of this if you look at the number of astrological things that happened in the first two weeks of may we've got about half as many things going on in the second two weeks of may Okay. So is the next thing, the next major thing, is it the sun's ingress into Gemini, which it always does around May 20th. And then shortly after that, we have our second lunation of the month, which is that new moon at two degrees of Gemini that we mentioned earlier. Correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Once we get there, I mean, everything's in Gemini. It's it, this is that, you know, this is that manic burst period in full bloom. Okay. And this one, we didn't. We talked more about the Venus Mercury conjunction that simultaneously square Neptune when we've touched on this earlier. But the other part we didn't touch on is this is a full on like Mars uh, touched lunation, lunation because the Sun and Moon conjoin at two degrees of Gemini. But then the very next aspect that's made immediately after that is the Moon applies to a square with Mars, which is at six degrees of Pisces at that point. So that's mm-hmm. that like raises the level of tension and um, sort of anger and angst and sort of problematic or um, not decisive necessarily, but um, the separative or separating types of energies that 
one might expect from a lunation are much more heightened than you than normal. Yeah, like the boat I mean, is being is rocking. Well, yeah, I mean, there's definitely that's definitely how should we say Mars definitely adds a contentious piece. It right contentious. It is, that's the word I was looking for. It's gonna yeah, it's gonna be in the context of Mercury and Venus and the Sun and Moon. Um, and the North Node all in Gemini, right? So it's going to be at Mars is going to be like throwing a little, uh, yeah, contentiousness, a little, there, there's a, some, you know, Mars will add a little ugly fire to a situation, but it, it's not the only, it's not the only planet with input, you know, that, that moon Saturn, or excuse me, moon, uh, sun, moon, it's also very tightly trying Saturn. And then with all those co-presences, it's, it's kind of a lot again, it's different. It's a very different version of a lot than the earlier uh, full moon in Scorpio, um, but it's still a lot. Like there are a lot of things going on, good, bad, and other. Yeah, maybe the contentiousness is connected with or arises out of um, the sort of misunderstanding or the illusion that's being brought on or indicated by the Mercury Venus conjunction square Neptune. Because we've already talked about there being something illusory, or Mercury square Neptune can sometimes be a illusion or even a, a misunderstanding or a lie, and something that comes out of that which causes contention or or vice versa. Yeah, I think that that'll definitely be part of it. Another way to put it might be that. Uh, you know, with, uh, you know, Neptune is the, is the, it's the dream. Like what's it's, it's the mystery. It's the dream. And in Pisces, uh, with Mars, I think that's like fighting over what, like to, uh, dovetail back to what I was saying at the beginning, fighting over what the story is, right? Like, you know, people mm. aren't, um, people don't feel neutrally about, <laughs> about what's happening, yes. um, nor should they. And there's a lot of like, no, I think this is what's really going on. No, 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 I think this is what's going on. And there are a lot of different stories and a lot of them um, uh, are mutually exclusive. So I, I would expect the story wars, somebody in the comments said story yeah. wars. I would expect the story wars to uh, uh, to be vociferous around this yeah. time. Or the blame, blame wars, because sometimes some of the things that are coming up are like blame and, and attempting to push blame on different parties or people looking for somebody to blame for what's going on and stories need villains yes right. you gotta have a goodie and a baddie yeah so then the question is like is it being correctly identified or or are we is some something being or someone being scapegoated um would be a question that i would have seeing something like that seeing a tense lunation um tied into Mars and the contentiousness of that with a simultaneous um, with the ruler of the lunation being simultaneously square Neptune. So yeah, I mean I uh, think we'll get all sorts of varieties of you know uh, figuring out stories that match the facts um, fighting over yeah I, I, I don't think it I don't think we get like one I think the event is story wars. I don't think that there will be one dominant narrative which takes hold. I think it will be the very opposite of that. It will be like a gladiatorial match with uh, 20, <laughs> 20 different uh, contestants. I guess something to be, maybe I should state just to be clear, is that while sometimes events happen 
around the time of something like this. Since it's a new moon, it may be something that's initiated at that time that doesn't grow and develop and become fully clear until two weeks later when you have the new moon um, in Sagittarius. So it may be the start of something that grows after that point. And that was such an important distinction, I think, that we all learned from the um, Saturn-Pluto conjunction earlier this year in January is remember, it's like back during that time, around the time that the Saturn-Pluto conjunction went, went exact around what the second week of January, there was like a couple things happening in the news where it was like the Australian wildfires were happening and you know, the US like assassinated a Iranian dictator, and all of a sudden everyone was very tense about whether World War III was about to start. But other than that, it wasn't like there wasn't other major stuff going on. And there was almost there was even some astrologers. I, re I remember some astrologer writing a series about how Pluto's not important and the Saturn Pluto conjunction was overhyped during that time and was being very vocal about that. But what we now know in retrospect a few months later is at that time, um, a little piece of news that kind of flew under the radar is that the World Health Organization announced that there was this new virus that had just been identified, and they announced that it was something to pay attention to and was growing and spreading very rapidly and would eventually become a worldwide thing. So maybe we already mentioned this on the past episode, but it was just a very striking lesson or reminder for me that sometimes the astrology indicates things that are starting and developing, but you may not be fully aware of it yet, and you may not fully understand the significance of it until sometime later in retrospect. Yeah, well, and that was that's triply true with the lunations uh, around that time, which were eclipses, which mm. are often given much longer, um, uh, much longer durations for their expected unpacking. Yeah, and more of for, a, and an and in more a strong quality of things being obscured. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, but but, but also what is, even what just is it, for what is for born any, in shadow, right? Mm. For any planetary cycle, but sometimes it, especially a conjunction, as representing symbolically the start of something or the start of a new cycle with respect to the properties or archetypal qualities of those two planets. But it's like sometimes you have a really long cycle that takes a while to fully develop. Because it's indicating something that's massive or has a lot of moving pieces, like a Saturn Pluto conjunction. But other times, like this month, you have a smaller cycle that's more self contained that's going to just be indicating things happening over the course of a month, a lunar month with the sun and moon conjoining in early Gemini, and then the full moon indicating a sort of culmination or coming into visibility. And then eventually, over the next two weeks, that closing down in preparation for the next lunation. So some cycles are just smaller. And you see the um, manifestation quickly because it has a shorter timeline or a shorter life cycle. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the other ways that I can't help but think about that new moon in Gemini is just this extreme concentration in Gemini. So for each of us, the Gemini house in our chart has got this almost weird, like there's a new moon, which is under tension from Mars, but there's that restlessness of like, I want to move forward. I want to take steps and maybe having to deal with tension around doing that. But at the same time, Venus is retrograde there, and there's that sort of call to review or go back over material or topics from the past. So it's this weird tension between a little bit of a push or this idea of trying to look forward with this call of having to reflect or to go back over things that, you yeah, know, from I, the I, recent I, or I, old past. 
I, I absolutely agree. And I think we can fold that into earlier delineations very easily where it's everybody's like, so what the fuck just happened? Right. Yeah. Since February. What? Yeah. What, what, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> what are we living right? in right now? <laughs> right. People right. meeting yeah. at a bar for the first time in a couple of months being like, so what the fuck do you guys think is happening? Where's this yeah. going? How long is this going to last? What does this mean about the economy? What does this mean about, is, is you know, there we can, you know, as I think the length of this podcast has demonstrated, uh, it's yes. very easy to talk about this for a very long time because there are a lot of questions and their answers are not trivial. Sure. Yeah. All right. So back to the animate chart. Um, we got the new moon, which is our second lunation around the 22nd. Then what are the last things as we're heading out? I mean, I know Mercury moves into Cancer and departs That's from Gemini. kind of the last. Oh, and Mercury will go, just before it goes into Cancer, it will pass over the North Node in Gemini, but they're the last couple of things. Okay. And then it moves into Cancer and that happens on the 28th of May? Yeah. Is that really it? Like, I worry, I'm not sure if we're overlooking something or if we've actually. I mean, there are no other ingresses or planetary aspects after that to the end of the month. There might be a little moon thing here or there. Uh Um, Austin, are we missing anything? I don't think so. I mean, we have been, we've spent a lot of time on this. I mean, the big stuff is Mars moves into Pisces, which ends the co presence, Venus goes retrograde. And then, you know, there are things that add and detract from that. But like, you know, there, there really is this kind of relatively simple bifurcation into um, beginning of the month before that stuff's happened. And then yeah. in the middle of the month that happens. And then that's the second half. May yeah. 13 is the mood shift date. I guess the point to emphasize is just that um, all of that stuff starts or ends in some instances in that second week of May between the 10th and the 16th, but so much of what starts then is then in effect for the rest of the month. So it's not that there's nothing happening in the later part of May, it's just that all the crucial stuff started at that point and then will continue for the rest of the month, in some instances leading all the way into June. So the, the Venus retrograde, Jupiter stationing, Mars going into Pisces, Saturn stationing retrograde in Aquarius and now heading back to Capricorn, all of that's stuff that's then going to be in effect for the rest of the month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's like a there's a mood change, there's a shift in focus and priorities. Uh, there are changes around plans and projects that were moving forward that are now moving backwards. There are things that have been very stagnant and stuck that all of a sudden start to be less stagnant and less stuck. So that I it, when we're doing this sort of brief summary, I really look at that four-day period from May 11 to May 14, where everything just spins and turns and the way you're facing after that period is different. So there are new things that you move forward into um, that just weren't available before then. Yeah, it's a real gear shift. Total gear gear shift. Brilliant. All right, guys. Um, well, we're at about two and a half hours, so I think we're getting towards the end of this episode, and I think we've pretty comprehensively covered most of the major points of the astrology of May that we meant to touch on. Um, of course, people should go back and check out our entire year ahead forecast, where we actually all got together here in Denver back in November, and we outlined a sort of very broad strokes forecast for the entire year of 2020 if they're looking for more information about what's coming up in the future from a big picture perspective. 
But in terms of the the details, I think we've covered May pretty thoroughly, and we'll have to wait a few weeks and get back together again to discuss June next month. Yeah. Yes. Well, so, Chris, what would be the most auspicious moment? Oh um, yes. To begin oh, an right. important project this month. Yes. I'm dying to know. That is that's so funny that you mentioned that because I completely forgot to introduce the auspicious election for this month. And part of the reason for that is it's such it's actually a really tough month, similar to last month for electional charts. Uh, Lisa spent a lot of time on it. Lisa Scheim, our in-house electional astrologer extraordinaire, spent a lot of time on it this month and had a really hard time finding charts, but did eventually find one. Um, that we wanted to highlight for this month, and it actually takes place on May 2nd, 2020, uh, around 9.30 in the morning with Cancer Rising. So for the video version, people, let me pull up that chart. All right, so May 2nd, around 9.30 in the morning with Cancer Rising. Thanks for reminding me of that, Austin. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> My brain is still not fully working. All right, so we've got Cancer rising in this chart. Um, part of the purpose of that is to make Jupiter one of the only angular planets. So Jupiter's angular in the seventh whole sign house, uh, 27 degrees of Capricorn in a day chart. The ruler of the ascendant is the moon, which is in Virgo, and the moon is not receiving any hard aspects from Mars and Saturn, which is part of what we're going for here. But instead, it's actually in the third whole sign house and it's applying to a trine with Uranus and a trine with Mercury with reception, which is its domicile lord, uh, which are up in the 11th whole sign house. So, this is a pretty good third house election for things like um, communication, perhaps teaching, uh, and other third house topics. Um, since the moon's in Virgo, it might be a good Virgo election for earthy type things or. Uh, work that involves attention to detail uh, and other Virgo type keywords like minding the details and other small things. Let's see, it's not a great chart for eighth house matters because Mars and Saturn are both in the eighth house. And so, matters involving shared resources, other people's money, or the partner's uh, financial assets may not be very good uh, in this chart. Um, but otherwise, it's relatively decent for third house topics. Uh, with the ruler of the ascendant in the third, uh, do you guys have any comments about this chart or about what what you might use a Virgo focused election for? I mean, this screams editing to me, going back <laughs> over something <laughs> that needs to be reworked or polished. Yes, editing are Virgos are the expert editors of the the zodiac. I always make sure I have a Virgo handy, as many people know. Uh, for editing, like on my book, or have somebody with heavy Virgo placements handy for book editing because they're just ma masters of that. Yeah, it could be a little bit of like scheduling or planning. I think about you know, Moon in the third is is just a really nice placement for using the mind. Could be a bit overactive because sometimes Moon in Virgo, but if you've got to do a lot of thinking or writing, or you've got a lot of paperwork to plow through, for people who still have paperwork. Yeah. Um, it's got some nice sort of uh, obviously there's uh, sort of complications, but it's got not just third house vibes, but good seventh house and eleventh house vibes to some extent as well. Mm -hmm. um, with Jupiter in the seventh house of partnership and Mercury in the Sun and Uranus forming a trine with the Moon in the eleventh house of friendship. 
So um, we did set the time on this in order to try to mitigate Venus because we don't really like having to put Venus and to relegate her to the twelfth house. So in our location in Denver, we just did it. So we just put Cancer rising, and then we tried to put the degree of the midheaven as closely configured to or squaring Venus as we could. Um, obviously, by doing that, it gets it pretty close to Neptune, since that Venus-Neptune square that's happening all month is um, unavoidable. But at least by putting the midheaven square Venus, we sort of mitigate it so that it's not as poorly placed in the twelfth house as it could be, and will instead have some constructive manifestation. But uh, like I said, we were really struggling to find good charts this month, and I guess after this whole discussion of some of the tensions and things going on, we kind of understand a little bit better why that is now. Um, but we did find three other electional charts, uh, which are available in the Auspicious Elections podcast for patrons of the Astrology Podcast on the $5 plus tiers. So I just released that yesterday. So if you want access to that, you can find out more information at uh, patreon.com slash the astrology podcast, I believe, or maybe it's just astrology podcast. All right. Um, yeah. Thanks, guys. This was a lot of fun. What do you have coming up? Kelly, I know you just got done doing uh, webinars this week, all weekend. Do you have more stuff like yes. that coming up? I have a couple of weekends off and then I have more stuff. Uh, I mean, I mean, I guess the biggest thing we do yeah. and just remind people of is both of you are speaking at Norwalk. Um, yes. Caitlin Kopic is also speaking at Norwalk. Lisa Shine is also Lisa basically is everybody. Well. Yeah. Yeah, basically yeah. everybody's speaking at Norwalk. It's going to be a ton of amazing lectures, and it's actually a unique opportunity because most people who, if you wouldn't have been able to attend otherwise, because it's so expensive to buy like flights plus a hotel plus food plus take off work, suddenly you have an opportunity to attend sort of a world class astrology conference from home. So it's kind of a nice opportunity. Yeah, there were a couple of comments about that in the chat earlier that for you know, as many of us that are disappointed we can't be there in person, there are just as many people who are excited that they can now at least connect into and participate with the Norwalk experience because they couldn't have taken the time or the money to fly across the country. And as you said, Chris, all the extra costs, there's a difference between just paying your registration money versus having all the extras on top of it. So, right. and then yeah. you also have the two week period to take in all the lectures as well, which means even if you can't give a whole weekend, you can see what you can on the live broadcast and then just, you know, watch a couple of days for the few weeks after. Right, because that's always the most annoying thing for me. Once you actually get there in person, is you there'll be five or six or seven lectures going at the same time, and you have to pick one of them to sit in on. And sometimes it means like picking between like five great lectures, but here you can actually attend all of them. Yeah, like if I have to pick between Lisa and Austin, that's really hard. But now I can actually get both. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I can't. I can't say who I would choose in that instance, but uh, it would be a <laughs> I tough. Mean, um, the the choices of this it, are a, event are even more compounded because I have to choose between Caitlin and Austin, or Caitlin and Lisa at this instance as well. That's actually funny. Were there original conflicts about? Did you guys see? Had you prepared your schedules for which ones you're going to attend and identified like which ones were going to be hard to choose between? No, I hadn't got to that yet. Thank goodness. Okay. No. Austin. I remember Austin when you gave your first lecture to Norwalk. It, you were speaking at the same time as like two of my other friends, so I had to like split and like sit in for yours yeah. for like fifteen minutes, and then sit in for somebody yeah, else's were... for fifteen minutes. And yeah, um, so you're excited about Norwalk. Are you doing just a talk? Or are you doing a workshop, Austin? I'm doing two talks and a workshop. Okay, I'm going to talk about uh, gemstones 
and astrology. Um, I think I named it something clever. Yeah, like the celestial lapidary or something like that. Um, and yeah, uh, from a couple, from the angle of a couple different traditions, you know, um, what what stones correspond to what planets and how have they been used um, in magic and in remediation and other things. And then my other lecture is about uh, derived houses. You know, looking looking at the chart from uh, drawing houses from points other than the ascendant, um, such as the part of fortune, or really um, taking uh, taking any perspective on the chart, as we might in certain techniques, where we want to look at the chart from the perspective of Mars. Right? What's fourth from Mars? What's tenth? What's seventh? What's ninth? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So we'll be doing um, uh, houses from houses. <laughs> And then my uh, my workshop is on the decans. We're gonna do we're gonna go through all thirty six, and then talk about do some talking about how how to use them and how they've been used historically. Nice, that sounds awesome. Um, Thanks. And Kelly, you're doing a talk and a workshop, or just two talks? Two talks, a keynote, and a workshop. Oh, okay, so not much. Not much. Not, It'll not be much a breeze. Um, what's your so What's your keynote? <laughs> It's on friendship, love, and community, and it's inspired by the Venus retrograde in Gemini. So I just wanted to look at the different ways we can interact and create affection and connection, um, which has taken on a totally different context and meaning now can, to when I conceived the talk uh, a year ago, but <laughs> there's plenty of time to factor in current circumstances. Nice. And I'm doing a talk on how to combine the progress moon with transits. So it's just, it's like one piece of some of my predictive astrology approach. So looking at the progress moon and how that can qualify your experience with major transits like Saturn return or, or midlife transits or just, you know, Pluto square your sun or what have you. Um, the other talk I'm giving is called Lunar Loving. And the subtitle is five things you should know about the moon, but probably don't. And it just goes into some of those extra considerations that are really important to know with the moon in terms of Things like speed of the moon, phase of the moon, aspects, whether the moon is kind of hanging out in the part of the sky by itself. So we're just going to go into little pieces of some of the older material on the moon that just gets totally overlooked today. And then my post-conference workshop is on the predictive pot of gold. So I'm going to present a lot of my uh, work around combining transits and secondary progressions together, which I just love teaching on. So that's going to be a really fun day. Laura was very kind to adjust the time of my workshop just to honor the fact that I'm in Europe. So we have a slightly earlier start time on Monday, the 25th. I'll be starting at 8.30 a.m. And I think most presenters like Austin will start at 10. Uh, so, yeah. Um, cool. What else? In May, I'm also doing a webinar as an, an intro webinar to SECT on May 16 for Astrology University. So that's something else I've got coming up this month, just a, an intro to what SECT is and how you can factor it into your chart interpretation work. Awesome. That's exciting. And uh, that's for Astrology University. And then I meant to mention the URL again for Norwak is norwak.net. Um, it looks like Lisa's talks are on zodiac releasing subperiods, which is really exciting because I don't think there's a lot of information or talks on that out there at this point. And then she's doing another uh, talk on weird chart combinations or the astrology of the weird. Um, and Austin, Caitlin's giving a talk on astrology and magic, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just wondering what's yeah. her topic. Um, let me think. It's uh, it's definitely on astrology and magic. It's sort of. Um, 
<sighs> living astrology and magic like how do how do these things combine in practice what is the relationship how do you you know what is the what um what perspective does astrological magic lend to astrology and how do we apply that uh, it, the title was taking the lead are with you getting the schedule magic. excellent there we go yeah because norwak has a great like schedule their website they just updated and it's actually really good now um, so yes. Caitlin's talk is taking the lead with astrological magic. Astrology can sometimes feel like a one-way exchange, us looking to the sky to discover what it it has to say about our inner worlds and manifest realities, but how can we introduce more agency and influence over how things unfold in order to build a life and cultivate a character more in alignment with our, our choosing? Learn how to learn how practical applications of planetary magic shift us from passive interpreters to active participants. In the dance between fate and free will, that is a very well well written. As somebody that's yes. had to write like a lot of lecture descriptions, like I can appreciate yes. how well because you only have like seventy five words, and so you really have to like pick each one carefully, and that's very well crafted. Caitlin is an exceptional yeah, much better writer. Than my mumbling description. Yeah, she I mean, is. there's many things about Kate that we love, but her writing skills I have been in awe of for a very long time. Are you uh, going to so Are you going to put the speakers up too, Chris? That's great. Yeah, so here's the rest of the speaker list. Colin Bedell, Lynn Bell, uh, who's been on the show, Gemini Brett, who's been on the show, Christine Cottle, who's been on who's a fan of the show and is a big supporter, Wade Caves, Austin Kopic, I've heard of him before, Caitlin Kopic, our friend Benjamin Dykes, who's been on the show many times, Stephen Forrest, Demetra, of course, Diana Rose Harper. I'm excited that this is her first talk at Norwalk, I believe. Yeah. Judith Hill, who's known for her work on medical astrology, Lawrence Hillman, Jason Hawley is great. Uh, Mark Jones been on the show a few times. Jessica Lignado, um, Alejo Lopez, uh, Martin Sebastian Moritz, Grace Morris, uh, financial astrologer Gregory Nabandian, Lauren Albandian, Julio Pellegrini, who's the new president of AFAN or the chair of AFAN. Sam Reynolds, Vernon Robinson. Oh, that's great. He's a Denver astrologer. I've been wanting to have on the podcast and I'm hoping to pretty soon here. Bear River is awesome. Sonel Sichdeva, Lisa Scheim, Nadia Shaw, somebody named Kelly Surtees, Kira Sutherland, Simon Vorster, Patricia Walsh, Robert. I thought this was going to be a shorter list. Uh, Robert Weinstein, Arlen Wise. That's okay. And finally, another friend of this show, Jen's Art. So that's a, that's actually a really amazing lineup. Now it's just remembering, it really is. reminding me of what a great lineup it was going to be, and how I was um, going back and forth about whether to attend because I was not speaking there this year. But now I think I will definitely attend. Yeah, the lineup is really cool. There's some beautiful. Um, well, there's a lovely mix of new people coming in to speak that I'm very excited to hear about. Um, I think it's Caitlin's first conference talk. Diana Rose Harper. Um, Bear River. So it's going to be great to get some new voices as well. Definitely. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. And Austin, you launched a bunch of stuff. So you're in the middle, like knee deep in teaching courses right now, yes. right? Yeah. Well, I'll be teaching month two of eight um, during May. Um, yeah. Other than that, like there's, uh, I think, some of the stuff I elected for Sphere and Sundry, some of the secretly good moments that were hidden. <laughs> uh, <laughs> During the uh, uh, not generally good moments, the first part of the year, I think uh, I think Kate's gonna uh, release a thing or two. We'll see, 
And other than that, I've got Norwak and trying to keep up with classes and readings. Brilliant. All right. Uh, Kelly's website is kellysertesastrology.com or kellysastrology.com. Kellysastrology.com. Yeah. Don't forget the uh, S in the middle. It's a common mistake. <laughs> Kelly's Astrology. And yeah. uh, Austin is austincopic.com. Uh, I'll mm. put links to those in the, the description below this video. Uh, as for me, I'm just going to be slowly getting back to work. I'm going to start getting back to grading student papers. There's been a lot of people who, during quarantine, because they had a lot of time to kill, decided to like learn, Study. invest in knowledge. I've had a lot of people sign up for my Hellenistic Astrology course, so I'm excited to work with some of those people and get back to work on the course and um, maybe start doing webinars again and, and generally yeah, like getting into helping people to learn ancient astrology and learning the type of astrology that we use here on the podcast. So people can find out more information about my courses at theastrologyschool.com. And uh, yeah, I think that's it for this episode. So I wanted to thank, this is our most well-attended live recording ever, I believe, where we had, I think, almost 100 participants join us for the live webinar for this episode, uh, which is one of the benefits of becoming a patron of the Astrology Podcast on certain tiers. So thanks a lot to all the patrons who joined us in the live recording. There's been a live chat, which has been a lot of fun. I've been trying to follow, and some of the comments have been really great. Um, sorry if we didn't get to everybody's questions or, or interact as much. It's always uh, tough juggling both while we're getting into discussions between the three of us. Um, but thanks uh, also in particular to all the patrons who support the Astrology Podcast and have continued to over the course of the past month since I've been gone and sick. And now that I've come back, I appreciate it, and I appreciate the ability to keep um, producing material like this, even during times like this, um, just due to the freedom that that's given me. So I'll be back again next month with a lineup of some great episodes. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing everybody again next month. So thanks, guys, for doing the forecast with me. Thanks My so pleasure. much. Thanks for having us. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Good luck next month, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks to the patrons who helped to support the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, Marin Altman, and Irina Tudor, as well as the AstroGold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs available at honeycomb.co. The production of this episode of the podcast is also supported by the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting a major astrology conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. More information about that at isar2020.org. And finally, also Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount on that software. For more information about how to become a patron of the Astrology Podcast and help support the production of future episodes while getting access to subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes or other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.